coming up on The Medicine Podcast. Google might say their tombs and uh, the mainstream guys might say their tombs, but there's very, very little evidence that they're tombs, almost none, in fact. No bodies have ever been found in them. No glyphs have been found in them. Put it this way, there's no glyphs in the Great Pyramid and there's nor in the other pyramids for that matter, the megalithic ones, that suggest that they're a tomb, that king's names aren't on them. We know what old kingdom tombs look like. There are old kingdom tombs at the Giza Plateau, covered in glyphs, covered in edifices and, and things like that. There's just, there's no evidence that they're, that they're tombs. It's so strange that that's the prevailing theory when there's almost, there's just no evidence for it. In fact, once you get into it too, there's very, very little evidence, scant evidence that even connects these rulers to these pyramids like khufu even though we say that's khufu's pyramid other than this very extremely questionable glyph that's in the relieving chamber there's like a, a three inch statue of him that they found down in the valley temple nowhere near the middle the, the great pyramid and that's it like there's just no there's really no evidence that connects them it's just during their civilization they they sort of associated him with it and we just take their word for it Welcome back to The Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi and I have my my love, my king, my warrior here with me. What is going on, everybody? Crazy excited today. This has been a long-awaited conversation. <laughs> uh, we are so stoked to introduce our friend, our fearless leader on our travels through Egypt. Uh, you know, probably my favorite Joe Rogan experience guest of all time, <laughs> Mr. Ben Van Kirkwick. Welcome to the Medicine Podcast, my friend. Chase, Mimi, thanks so much for having me on. Yes, it's uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. And uh, you guys, it was it was just a great time hanging out with you guys in Egypt. Thanks so much for, for coming. And I, you know, I hope you enjoyed it. I think I think most everybody on that trip did. It was uh, it was a, probably the best Egypt tour I've um I've ever been on that was a that was a really fun one it's always a yeah. magical place but the, i think the group and the people on that trip uh made it something special so yeah. and that's yeah. saying something because the group was not small we had what close to 50 60 More. people yeah close uh, to 60 yeah. 60 and and to have zero drama zero you know i don't know negativity at all like everyone there was just there to learn and have a good time and ask some crazy questions and, yeah. and and learn from you and it was it was uh it was awesome minus the mummy tummy <laughs> and COVID. it's like and COVID. Yeah. covid and chronic diarrhea for three weeks was pretty interesting but uh right. besides that dude it was it was such a trip of a lifetime it was, it was epic. Just incredible yes awesome that's great that's great i i very much appreciate hearing that as well but yeah like there's, there's you know there's invariably some people do get a touch of the old mummy tummy in egypt it's it's kind of hard to dodge but yeah yeah i mean i was that's the biggest group we've i've done i was a little nervous about it um because i normally is like half that size but we got that we had radios too so that made a huge difference i think mm. just on the sites having the ability you're not like yeah. screaming at people everyone's got a radio and we've got a couple transmitters so it made it much more manageable and uh yeah the, like you said the group dynamic was was great everybody was into it i mean we had we had a really diverse bunch of people with us. Um, yeah, I, I I enjoyed the the I just enjoyed the hell out of that trip. It was it was a good time, and we got to some places that, like frankly, probably haven't been visited for decades. Like the Sphinx yeah. Temple in particular was. I mean, that place is really special, and our guide Yusuf, who literally lives across from the Sphinx and is born and raised there, and he's hang out with his dad, who was one of the first guides. Uh, to to show people around in Egypt, and he'd never been in there in his whole life. He's about my age, in his early forties, and so just to, the opportunity to get into that place—that was something special for me. So that, that'll that'll always stand out. Yeah, yeah. That, that last day was just absolutely amazing. Like, I mean, 
we've had a host of different spiritual experiences in life, you could say, and <laughs> and uh, that day, and then to to really kind of cap the whole trip off with two hours in the Great Pyramid in the evening mm. under oh. the. I forget what planet was completely lit up that night, but it was like a beautiful night sky, and we're al- alone in the the king's chamber for like an hour. Just I think it was Jupiter, yeah, yeah. maybe just Might a Jupiter or Pluto, something like that. So it was yeah. Jupiter, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was so wild and so paradigm shifting, and it was the the perfect experience for how we, you know, Egypt has been on our bucket list for a long time, but there's no way that you can have that kind of experience just a couple of people going to Egypt. There was no way we were going to, even if we would have hired a a great guide, like you guys were able to get us into places, like you said, that haven't been visited in decades, which was, we we did not take lightly. Yeah. Well, no, neither do I. I mean, it's, that's, that's the, that's the benefit of doing it like that as well. And you're right. It is, you, you can get sort of, there's definitely some pushy vendors and and people that you know it's a big <laughs> tourism's a big part of the the livelihood for a lot of people there and they're potentially maybe a little more aggressive on, on pursuing a sale uh than in some other spots but doing it in a group like that and and obviously our guys like mo and the team that run it i think they're the best in the business for for that type of stuff they really look after people and ultimately their their main goal is to make sure everybody has a good time in egypt and and just comes out with positive a positive experience and that's the funny thing about Egypt. Like you can sit back and study it. And many people do for a lifetime. And it's this analytical process of maybe looking at the architecture and the details of the civilization. But then when you go there, you know, you talk about spiritual experiences. There's, there's this, there's absolutely something else that happens. Like it's an emotional connection the, the first time I went there, I was, I mean, my, the way I work, it's logical. I focus on the engineering stuff a lot. So I had all these expectations, but when you go there, it's like the other, the whole other side of your brain connects to this. It's like this emotional experience that that takes you somewhere with it. And those two things kind of meld together. That's why it's it's so special. And it's also why so many people find themselves being called back there again and again. Mm-hmm. It, it it just I think it just takes you in a lot of ways, takes you out of your own world. It gives you something else to think about. You you're sort of in a different place for a long for for a while, and it makes your brain work a little bit differently when you're there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. Absolutely, it's a, it's a psychedelic experience just to be there. It, it completely changes the default mode of thinking just yeah. by by sitting in it and 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 absorbing that that gnosis feeling of like wow, there is something outside the the three dimensional world that I exist in that's yeah. going on here, and I'm kind of thirsty to figure out what it is. Of course, we went there with you know maybe a hundred questions and came back with a thousand. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what happens. And, and our casual, very casual, you know, uh, Joe Rogan listening, Graham Hancock reading, uh, very very casual amateur perspective on history and archaeology and anthropology. Uh, just our brains were freaking blown wide yeah. open while we were over there. But hopefully, we can get into it a little bit today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a great segue to jump into hopefully blowing some of our listeners and watchers minds as well. But before we get into more of Egypt, the first question that we ask every guest on the medicine is what do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to every human? Uh, that's relatively easy. I th- I think it's independence. Um I for me it's it's yeah, it's it's this it's the independence and purpose, I guess, would be would be the two things. It's it's, it's you know we go through life and it's we, we, our society is structured such that you, you know we we you know you follow the certain path. It's kind of a little bit of the conditioning of of the world we're in, and it's a good life. Modern times are a great time to be alive, uh, no doubt. I'd I'd rather be alive in these times 
more so than anything else. But for me personally, it's it's finding eventually like a, a calling and a purpose that then you can combine that and I guess to make it a livelihood and uh, and and actually integrate that into what you do most of every day. And along with that, for me at least, being doing what I do uh, with YouTube and just this whole Uncharted X thing uh, is 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 that independence. It's just maybe it's my I'm much more temperamentally suited to that. I was never a good one to sort of have a boss or being told what to do. So, uh, and, and I got away with it in a long time, but I, I was for 20 years in a, you know, structured corporate environment in, in IT, uh, with a job that I enjoyed and, and a field that I still enjoy. But yeah, having that, like that, this, it was an absolute, and to this day, I still feel really blessed and, and, and lucky and privileged. And I would give up, you know, it's not like if I want tons of money, I can go back to IT and things like that. And I just, I'm, I'm more than happy to sacrifice that aspect of life for that ability to be independent, to be in charge of my own destiny and to be lucky enough to be doing something that for me at least is a purpose. Like I have a, a mm-hmm. I feel like I've got a purpose in life and I'm I'm doing something, not just doing a job uh that's a means to an end. It's something that I'm very much passionate about, I'm engaged in and I get to do it all the time now. And I, I'm just absolutely blessed by that. And if I could give that sense to to people, that would that would hundred percent be it. Well yeah. that that would if every human had that in our world, like our world yeah. would change overnight. Yeah, I think so. I think too. that that's what a lot of people are missing is a, a, a overarching dream or mission or purpose yeah. in life and and a labor of love um, is is what you have and and what mm. we have. And we actually get that answer quite a bit from entrepreneurs is, is freedom, independence. Mm. And yeah, you might have to sacrifice a little bit on the monetary end, maybe, but sometimes you're actually increasing you're yeah. becoming more abundant but yeah there's strings attached yeah. to the to the money that comes there with is. the there hamster is. wheel yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah well some people that's true and, and but you know some it doesn't always have to be a an income thing either some people find that purpose so it might be family or it might be other other mm-hmm. you know other angles hobbies things like that too but but yeah if you can combine that with with the ability to like make a livelihood out of it and as you say yeah maybe in some cases with entrepreneurs they're making way more money uh, out of it which is which is great then that's I think that's a it's a it's a good combination to have uh, when you can combine like the you know I guess the job and the livelihood with that thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're very grateful for your your purpose and your work in this life because we're benefiting from it, and our listeners and watchers are benefiting from it as well. Yeah, and so maybe that makes a good segue into like backing up a little bit, like you know what do you do currently in the world today, um, and, and this this YouTube phenomenon that you've <laughs> jumped into and really just captured a, a beautiful corner of that that space. Um, and then how did you get there? Like, I would imagine it took a relatively large leap of faith to go from oh, yeah. that corporate background into this, this realm of, of YouTube creation and content creation. Yeah, it did. Well, and so, you I mean, I, I do run, that's what I do now. I mean, I found myself on YouTube. I guess I'm a, a YouTuber, a content creator. I run the, the Uncharted X YouTube channel, unchartedx.com. I have a website and all the rest of the socials and all that stuff that's attached to it. And it, apparently, it's what all the it's what all the kids want to be these days. <laughs> the latest surveys, it's you know they they used to say, well, it used to be back in the day, it was like we want to be what our dad is a fireman, policeman, whatever it is, and then it's then it it sort of shifted to, well, I want to be a celebrity, I want to be famous, <laughs> and now it's a quite common response is, I want to be a YouTuber, you want to yeah. be that, and it's you know it's it's a it's a lot of work, it's a grind, um, you know, as you said, yeah, I it it was a big leap of faith, it took several years, um. But the way I got into this, I mean, I was always interested. My mother was a history teacher. Uh, so I always had an interest in history. I read the books. I remember going to university, and, but I was at the same time always into computers and IT and all that stuff. I was building computers in a computer shop when I was 15 and things. 
and uh, went to university and went, well, you know, I can either choose to make some money or I can go into this academic field. And I went the way of IT, uh, which was great. But I, And I had a long and sort of 20-year career uh, in IT. I moved all around the world. We, I was in Australia and, and pre-Y2K, uh, the big boom in IT that happened as a part of that. Then I moved to Singapore, moved to the States. I've been in the, in the US now for, for 17 odd years. But, you know, it wasn't, and this is, we were talking about this briefly earlier, it wasn't until, and I'd read Graham Hancock's I think fingerprints and I knew who he was and I was interested in that, but it wasn't until his first appearance on, on Rogan's podcast. And I got to say, this must've been back 2012, 2011, maybe uh, back in the early days of that show that he came on as this just mind blowing uh, conversation for me. And it was funnily enough, not actually that the historical angle to it, it was more that his work into consciousness and psychedelics and that sort of, I hadn't ever thought about that stuff. Like I just, you know, um, I, I just wasn't into that that type of thing. I was I was very much in the in the lane of consumerism and and sort of climbing that corporate ladder and being successful. And I was uh, I was good at my job and 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 all of that. But that shifted, you know. Then that led me down the path of well, I'm going to have some of these experiences myself. And then over a period of a couple of years, obviously, you know, as you guys probably well know, it it can shift your priorities, to change the way you look at the world, the people around you, what you're doing with your time, who you are, and it had that effect on me. So I I was uh, uh, sort of followed Graham a bit more closely at, at the same time this is going on. And then I heard, oh, well, he put out a, a tweet saying, hey, I'm going to Peru and Bolivia to do some research for his new book. And the book he was working on was Magicians of the Gods, which um, followed, was the follow-on to Fingerprints. And I was like, well, you know, shut up and take my money. He, he had a little <laughs> tour going on. And uh, so in 2013, I went down and two weeks in Peru and Bolivia with, with Graham. Uh, Brian Forrester actually was running that tour. So I met him on that trip. Uh, and I was blown away that that was fantastic just being in that world. It's it's a similar experience to Egypt. Uh, the megalithic stuff down there is, is amazing. It's one of my favorite places. Peru is just a wonderful place. So is Bolivia. And then 2015 was was really, he did the same thing in Egypt, which was, it was something of a notorious trip that there was supposed to be set up as a debate between him and Zahi Hilwas at the end of this tour. Uh, and it, you know, it's it, but in the light of kind of the controversy and the, the things that are being said about his ancient apocalypse series, this is something that's been going on for a long time, but the debate didn't go well. It, you know, Zahi had this big, uh, kind of dummy spit moment that, that was captured on camera and it's on, on the internet. You can go and look at it, but it, can you explain whole, who he is? Oh, sure. So Zahi was, is a, he's the Egyptian archeology. If you think of like an Egyptian archeology, you've probably seen pictures of him. He was on, he was a national geographic ambassador for many years Wears the the Indiana Jones style hat and the blue shirt. He does lots of documentaries. He's probably the most famous archaeologist in the world. He's now semi-retired, uh, and he's written a bunch of a bunch of books. But he was in charge of the Supreme Council of Antiquities for for many years, so controlling access to and all the digs and everything that happens around antiquities in Egypt. Very powerful figure, um, and very much a staunch defender of the orthodox sort of mainstream story of history. Uh, notorious for calling, for sort of calling people pyramidiots and, and attacking authors. Wasn't always the case. I've, I've actually got a photo of, you know, him arm in arm with guys like Graham Hancock, Robert Boval, John Anthony West, all of these authors that are in Graham's field that you you might consider them alternative. They've been proposing sort of alternative takes on history and alternative interpretations of the evidence for a long time. But anyway, that 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 tour was was a real eye opening experience to the the nature of a lot of the dogma that and that that comes back from the mainstream but um it was on that tour where i was like you know what there's 
there's a big opportunity. Like there's there's a need for some. What I thought of at the time was like at that time in YouTube, you couldn't go and find good footage of Egyptian sites. If you wanted to look at like Giza Plateau in detail or, or Abu Sir or any of these lesser known places that are remarkable, they're full of all sorts of interesting things. You couldn't really find it. There was a few documentaries floating out there, but you know they're lower quality than VHS tapes and stuff like this. And at the same time, you've you kind of had the rise of consumer grade 4K video equipment that's stabilized. And I thought, well, I think there's room here for a fresh look at a lot of these sites with the you know high quality video equipment that is combined with these concepts and ideas and these other takes on history that are buried in these books. So the only people that really know them, the people that are into the topic, they're reading these books. And I got into it with the intent of like, we'll make a documentary, but it's like, what the hell do I know about making documentaries? That's the <laughs> film world. Like, do you raise money and produce all this stuff? Nothing. So you end up on YouTube and that's, that's where it went. But it wasn't until like the next year where I was like, well, this is, I, I'm so interested in this and I'm so engaged by this. And I was taking time off from work to go travel and film and all this stuff. And I said, I'm just, and I was lucky enough to be in a position where I was like, I can quit. I, I get lots of, I was getting lots of job offers and I would have had no problem finding work. So I, I essentially quit my job and thought, oh, well, I'm going to put my back into this for a couple of years. And that was 2015, 2016. And I'm, I'm still at it now. So that, that's how I ended up there. It took wow. a couple of years. I mean, I, I almost went back to work, I think around 2018. I was looking at contract work, but then, uh, you know, the growth started to become more sustainable and, uh, and it's taken off kind of from there. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for, for that. I'm grateful for the support I get from my audience. And uh, I'm glad that people enjoy the the work I'm trying to share because ultimately I'm just, I mean, mostly I'm trying to satisfy myself with, with what I'm doing and my own curiosity, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really grateful that people like it and, uh, and, and get into it. Even yeah. if it is, as you said, something of a niche, like it's not, I need to get better at the broader appeal side of things, but, but it's, it's a niche and it's, it's, it's a, it's a happy one for me. It is. And it's, but it's something that's deeply resonating for many. Yeah. And there, there's something behind this work, the mystery of it, uh, the feeling that there's more out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that resonates with a lot of people like, yo, we're not looking at everything. And I think most people could would honestly say that in, in, in their life, that there is something kind of behind the veil. And I think yeah. this is just a really cool way to lean into that feeling that so many of us have. And I'm, I'm same with you, man. Like, those early Rogan episodes, it was like Aubrey Marcus talking about ayahuasca. It was Graham Hancock talking about ayahuasca. Yep. I'm a Christian, you know, school kid growing <laughs> up, like, what the hell is this? And I mean, I'm sitting in college, yeah. like, man, my life is boring as hell. There is way <laughs> more goods out there that I need to look into. And uh, it was, it totally pivoted my career out of corporate finance and moving, moving into health and wellness and adaptogens and, and, and even, even the kind of original space of our, our podcast has been around, mm -hmm. you know, mushrooms and, and mind expanding ideas. And, and so I yeah. uh, totally get it there. It, it just takes a little nudge. It does. Yeah. And I think that you're right in that, that, you know, I think people crave to some extent that a sense of, of mystery. And, and I think when you look closely at a lot of aspects of where we are in our place on the planet, and, and there is, there is some, something that seems to suggest another side of the veil, if you like, and and I think certainly in this case, you know, we I think we do have a longer history on the planet. Um, you know, there's there's been some really remarkable scientific advances that have happened in the last twenty years that that really should be affecting that story of of our history as a, as a species and as a civilization. Uh, you know, in particular, the big one was the discovery of the the cataclysm that happened. So we had this god awful you know just catastrophe that occurred about thirteen thousand years ago. It's known as the the Younger Dryas period. 
Uh, it's the transition from the Holocene, oh, sorry, from the Pleistocene, kind of the glacial maximum into the Holocene, which is the era, era we're in today, about 13,000 years ago. And there's an extinction event associated with it, right? All the mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and, and you know, anteaters the size of Volkswagens and giant ground sloths and stuff. A huge number of species went extinct in that period. And it it's often gets, I think some people maybe mix it up with the dinosaurs, but this was a very recent extinction event. And, uh, you know, our, our, us humans as a species went through it as well. And it knocked us around and, and it for sure would have eradicated any civilization that was around at that point. And it's a, I think that's a huge piece of this puzzle because when you start to look at places like Egypt and South America, there's all this tremendous evidence that something else was going on in the deepest layers of those civilizations, almost like they started with all this stuff and then they, you know, they grew up on top of that and thousands of years of building on top of it. Um, and it, it, all of these other vectors that come from you know, modern science and, and the work we've been doing are really reinforcing that story, that, that perspective on history. And unfortunately, it's just, it, it faces a lot of resistance from, uh, I guess, what you'd call the mainstream um, academia, the archaeologists, the guys in, uh, in those academic institutions that write the textbooks. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, and you see a lot of this in the pushback on guys like Graham Hancock and his recent Netflix series. Um, but it's you know it's fantastic that there are guys like Joe Rogan who are interested in it that that give voice to some of these alternative theories. But I honestly think the the weight of evidence now is is really shifting, and it is time that we we reevaluated those earliest parts of our history because I think you know we do go back a lot further, and there's a much more interesting past um, to our species. And kind of the important thing about all that for me is is that you know we we we, we typically kind of think it's this, I call it like a pillar or a tenant of being a modern human being. It's a pillar of our existence, this idea that we came from the Stone Age, we were cavemen, and we went up this this ramp to civilization, more or less you know, six, 7,000 years ago. And now we, we find ourselves here in the modern world doing our thing. And that's like the only time that's happened. That's the way it's supposed to happen, like it's some preordained path. And I think in reality, it's more cyclical. Like we We've risen to heights in the past and we've been struck down by cataclysm and external threats to the planet. And I, I do think that if more people understood that at a very fundamental level, this idea that, you know, we're not the first, this isn't the first time we've risen to to advance civilization. And for sure, it's, you know, it, it, those sort of cataclysms can and will happen again on a long enough time frame. That type of a of an understanding that's at a fundamental level across humanity, it might actually help to change some of our priorities and the way that we, we behave as a species, right? You might spend a little less money on tanks and a little bit more money exploring the stars and trying to get out there and spread out. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's altruistic, but that's, I think that's one of the, the important elements of trying to reevaluate our past. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So like, let's, let's start unpacking this a little bit. I think most people would, would, are tracking in the sense they're like, yeah, you know, pyramids, these pyramids are, are completely crazy technologies yeah. that, that in no way, shape or form just popped up out of nowhere. There has to be some sort of grandfathered, you know, systematized, beautiful way of, of, you know, curating these things, you know, tough to imagine somebody just, you know, chiseling their way through uh, the, the, the build of something of this magnitude, but it's so much more than that. And, and like what we looked through in Egypt, through a lot of what your work showcases, um, maybe we can start talking and, and beginning with the pyramids and, the, and then sure. some of the other lanes and areas that you've seen are clearly indicative of this, at least reason for us to take another look. Sure. Yeah. And the pyramids are a good place to start, actually. So we, we kind of touched briefly on the other vectors. Like there's, there's 
you know, the younger dryest, there's the scientific work, there's the extension of the human timeline, there's there's no end of of cultural indicators in, in origin stories around the world of cataclysm. So there's all these other vectors that affect it. But when you when you when you come and look at the specific ancient civilizations like Egypt, and there are others as well, you know, there are a lot of these contradictions to the kind of the timeline that what we would consider the mainstream timeline. Yeah. So let's go through the mainstream timeline. Yeah. Let's yeah. Iron that out. Yeah, I can share some of this stuff too if you like. Maybe. Yeah. Um, let me grab that. While you're doing that, just for reference for the listeners, if you were to Google some of these questions, you know, how old are the pyramids or who built the pyramids or what were the pyramids used for? You would get sort of a a cookie cutter answer. And when we were in Egypt, um, we were we had a stint about four days or so on a cruise ship. And Ben was awesome enough to present to us this. I think it was like 90 minutes of yeah. all this evidence that points to answers that do not exist on Google yet. Right. And <laughs> but the evidence was overwhelming. It wasn't just like theories that somebody thought up in their head. It was like, no, there's hard physical evidence and we can use deductive reasoning to move through this. And I'm just going to toot your horn here a little bit. After this presentation, I mean, I was wide eyed, like, oh, my God, <laughs> like tracking every single word with COVID, by the way. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But afterwards, I remember asking you, like, how do I share this presentation with every single person I know? <laughs> because it's that like mind blowing. So Thank you. just wanted to toot your horn a little Thank bit. You. And that's, this is, this is kind of where this topic, this episode is coming from is because it was so freaking mind blowing all the evidence that you've accumulated. Thank you. I I, I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you, you enjoyed uh, that presentation and I will, I do, int- I will re- release that presentation as well. I'm going to do a version of it. Uh, I am. I'm speaking just at the, the Cosmic Summit, which is coming up in in uh, in June this year. Big summit. We're combining sort of like I'm speaking, Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, a lot of people that are involved in this space, authors and independent researchers, but also a bunch of uh, credentialed and you know peer-reviewed scientists, people from the Cos- Cosmic Research Group, past presidents of the American Archaeological Society. Uh, a lot of a lot of people like that. It's going to be a great conference, and I'm giving a version of this presentation then. And after that, I'll definitely release um, a, a version of this, or probably a longer one, uh, online, and, and have a video that steps through it. But yeah, that's it. Does walk through a lot of those details, and mm-hmm. prob- as you say, probably the best place to start is is the pyramids. Let me uh, let me share a couple things here, and uh, you guys, let me know if you can see it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool. So one of the things that's, and I guess we can maybe just do a, a quick overview of of Egypt in general. Uh, the timeline is a um, is a good one to to kind of just to, just to initially like set the stage for for when you're looking at Egypt like what are we talking about? Well, mm-hmm. the civilization as we know it, you would call this the dynastic Egyptian civilization. This is the orthodox history, the version of history that is is very much accepted uh, and mainstream. But it generally begins more than five thousand years ago, around thirty one fifty BC, uh, with Menes, who was the first pharaoh of the first dynasty, and that led into what you would call the early period in the old kingdom. Um, you have these these kingdoms or periods of Egyptian civilization that are separated by what you'd call like intermediate periods or essentially downturn periods. It's when it's when the the upper and lower kingdoms of Egypt were potentially split. There was maybe war and strife going on, so we kind of separate these periods. But you know the, the civilization stretches for for over three thousand years uh, in general. You have the old kingdom, you have the middle kingdom, you've got the new kingdom. 
And then what's generally considered the late period or the Ptolemaic period, which is where you have Greeks and Romans uh, really being heavily involved in uh, in in the Egyptian civilization. And in fact, you know, Cleopatra, I'm sure everybody's familiar with, she was the very last ruler or, or pharaoh, I guess, of the Egyptian civilization. And when she committed suicide in, in around 30 BC, that's kind of the end of it. So that that timeline stretches for a long time. It's 3,000 years. Hey, friend, are you like me looking for ways to age gracefully and beautifully, but also naturally? If so, then we must be aware of the nutrients that we are gifting our body and cells to resist premature aging. One of my favorite ways to do that is with Tremella mushroom. Tremella has been used for centuries for its unmatched cellular hydration, aka healthy glowing skin, by holding 500 times its weight in water. I get my daily Tremella with Mushy Love Latte. This is Chase and I's delicious mushroom elixir that we formulated from scratch to support healthy, hydrated skin cells, shiny, strong hair, gut health, and robust immunity. My favorite way to enjoy Mushy Love is blended with cold milk. It seriously tastes like liquid graham crackers. You can also enjoy it steamed or blended into your vanilla protein shake or as a cinnamon swirly coffee creamer. To grab yours, go to getmushylove.com and use the code medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for a nice discount. Cheers to aging gracefully and naturally. And when when you get into things like the pyramids, what's interesting is is that objects like the pyramids, and in fact, this applies to a lot of what you might call the advanced artifacts, uh, the, the the ones that display elements of advanced engineering or technology, they all seem to come from the very earliest periods of Egypt. So, for example, when we when we look at the pyramids, uh, and you sort of zoom in on that that part of the old kingdom, we're way back over here with you know 2700 BC, the very earliest parts of the civilization in the old kingdom, the dynasties three through six, that's where all of these pyramids, the big massive ones that are still standing today, that's where they they come from. And the whole timeline of pyramid building is, is a massive contradiction uh, into in the story of history to me, because, you know, we start with what's what people say is like the very first, the proto-pyramid, which is the step pyramid of, uh, of Djoser at Saqqara. That's this one uh, here on the, on the left. But, but almost immediately after that, you know, you 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 have what, and this is the again the the mainstream timeline. You immediately go into these giant megalithic, precision built pyramids. This is the the mainstream timeline, and it's just you jump from something relatively pyramid um, primitive, to these 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 massive edifices that are made up. So, for example, the Great Pyramids, like, you know, it's 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 something like what is it like between five and six million tons and two and a half million blocks of stone still standing today was the tallest object on the man-made object on the planet uh, up until the Eiffel Tower was built. Uh, it's still one of the most precisely made structures in terms of its alignment to true north uh, that we've ever made. We didn't even develop the capability in our civilization to measure that degree of accuracy of how well it was aligned until yeah. the 1700s. Um, and there's all these remarkable elements to it that we can talk about. But that's like the fourth, they say that's the fourth pyramid ever built. And then you you know you you have in a very short period of time on the on the Giza plateau you have the three massive pyramids up there. You're talking about those all being supposedly built in a period something around fifty to sixty years. Mm-hmm. So it's all all of this stuff's packed into the very earliest part of the of the civilization. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. 
I was just going to give some some context for the listeners. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, I think it's whatever, 2.3 million stones or 2.5 mm-hmm. million stones make up the Great Pyramid. These aren't just like rocks or bricks. Hmm. These are stones that are taller than me in some cases, you know, and the, the, the granite, which I'm sure you'll get into, but I just want to, I just want to kind of stamp this here. So people understand it would be, I mean, just using logical reason impossible for humans as we know them to be able to move 2.3 million stones from 500 miles away where the quarry was to the site at Giza. Right. So it's not just they're picking up stones from five feet away and placing them. They're, they're it's a combination them. of things. Yeah, it's a combination of so so the 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 outer casing stone, like most of the stones in the pyramid, you're right. They're quarried stones. They weigh an average of between two and three tons. They're big blocks on the Great Pyramid. Some of the other pyramids have much larger stones, but the interior structure of the Great Pyramid is made from granite. And now that granite and some of these blocks of granite, these ashlars are like seventy to eighty tons, single pieces. They've they've come from a quarry in Aswan that yes it's 500 miles away, uh, so that, you know we know that's where the, the the source for the granite was. There's nothing around that Giza area that that suggests they could get any granite. All of the quarries we we know the quarries are there. You, you can go and visit them. That's where a lot of that granite came from. Now it's it's not just a matter of well, there's a huge logistical problem around around the pyramid in general. And maybe we can just look a little bit close more closely at that. For example, here's an image of. The middle pyramid and some of the the, the, the limestone blocks on the exterior, you can see the size of, of some of them. They're not just it's, bricks. No, they're not just bricks. And it's well, that's the, there's a couple of elements to it that they're very precisely made. It's a it's an extremely challenging task, and there's a logistical train of thought that you can go back. So with the Great Pyramid, the guy, the the ruler who supposedly built it, his name is Khufu or Cheops, um, Cheops, if you if you like it Greek, uh, he. He ran for around 25 years. So 25 years is 20 to 25 years is the estimation that they say uh, it took. That's about the time they say it took to build. Now, if you work backwards from that and you look at the number of blocks that are involved, you're talking across 25 years, you have to have one block finished, cut, transported, put in place, perfectly aligned, all of that. One block every five minutes for 24 <laughs> hours a day, seven days a week, for 25 years to, to in order to build that structure in 25 years. Now, that doesn't take into account the tremendous amount of 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 foundational work that has to go into these these structures. Like Yusuf and I, we we go to great pains to to show people when you're walking around the pyramid, the tendency is to look up at this thing and go, "Man, that thing's amazing." But what you sh- what you should also is look down at your feet because mm-hmm. at at the feet that there is there was probably years and years of work in terms of leveling the ground. They in some places they put in these gigantic floor tiles. Uh, that are the foundation blocks for the pyramid. Some of these weigh in excess of 200 tons uh, and they're fit together with precision. Just It's like a three-dimensional block that locks into the bedrock and the other blocks around them, you can't fit a razor blade in between the gaps, which is something you see on pretty much all of this pyramid architecture, which is just utterly remarkable. Um, it doesn't that, that figure of one block every five minutes doesn't account for all of the other structures that are associated with the pyramid complex because... Pyramids aren't really there on their own. They have a complex of other structures around them. They have causeways and, and so-called temples, but these are other, you know, giant megalithic structures. So it's 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 very implausible that this type of thing can happen in 25 years just on its own, under any circumstances, let alone what you would consider the very primitive Bronze Age technology of the time, which let's remember in the old kingdom, 
it no pulleys, no wheels, no you know, no iron, no cranes, uh, no cranes, no use of dement, no animals. There's no indication that that animals were used with the oh. with the dynastic Egyptians. They used they used ropes, they used levers, they used wooden sleds, and they used human horsepower. And it was only in a it was only a three month period of of the year when the Nile floods, like this yearly inundation, like that was the only time of the year where you had enough water to be able to then ship these stones, you know, 500 miles north uh, to Giza from from um, from Aswan to get the blocks there. So the logistical challenges of this type of thing back up further and further. And it gets even, it honestly gets even crazier when you look at some of the other examples. So uh, before, before, um, before Khufu, and the Great Pyramid, the three pyramids that preceded that were the Pyramid at Maidum, the Bent Pyramid, which we visited, and mm-hmm. also the Red Pyramid. We went into both those pyramids on our trip. Now, all three of these pyramids are associated to a guy named Sneferu of the Third Dynasty. This is, again, the mainstream story. Now, you've got to ask yourself, so if these pyramids were tombs, how come he needed three of them? Um, how, many, how many giant pyramids does one pharaoh really need? Um, obviously, the, I don't think they're tombs. Um, uh, it's just really no evidence to back up the fact that they were tombs. No, there's never been mummies found in these pyramids or anything like that. But if you try and can, if you try and cram these three giant pyramids, which each of them is is almost as big as the Great Pyramid on their own, you're talking about, you know, it's it's 35, 3.5 million tons of stone, and it requires more than 380 tons being installed every single day mm. over 25 years to to get these three pyramids built. So it's you know, you have a logistical challenge here that's 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 very 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 significant, and you have a time a technological timeline challenge too. Because what what is interesting is that after this period, so after these these megalithic massive pyramids were built, the Egyptians kept building pyramids. Right, so not many people really may be aware of this, but they do keep building pyramids. But like this, for example, is the pyramid at Hawar, and you'll notice that. It's not megalithic. It's not made out of stone. It's made out of mud bricks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so th- if you think of a technological timeline, like how do you how do you start at the top of that? How do you you peak instantly with your capability, your technology, and then you start building pyramids out of mud brick? And it would to be me- like the equivalent of us, you know, having iPhones in all their capability with 4K cameras and everything <laughs> back in the 80s. And now we have the huge bricks, you know, that have a cord in your car. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So yeah. I, I just want to translate a little bit. Yeah. The technological gap, the timeline doesn't make sense because we're seeing the most advanced as the oldest. And That's as right. time goes on, we see the more prim- primitive kind of copycat type of structures. It just doesn't make sense with what how we know technology advances. Yeah. Yeah. It's as you, great examples. Like, it's like, you know, we had... We had iPhones and everything else back in the day, and now we're using these, you know, corded rotary dial phones made out of Bakelite. You know, right. yeah. <laughs> like it's the same thing, and 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 it's I call it it's it's a technological contradiction that exists in multiple categories of evidence across Egypt. It's not just pyramids. That's the interesting thing about it. So with the pyramids, you know, you can see here on the left, you've got these older megalithic pyramids still standing today, amazing structures, wonders of the world. And then on the right, you've got examples of a number of these mud brick pyramids that are all collapsed and, and, and worn away. So you've got to, you know, this is a, a question mark on the orthodox story of history. Now, maybe there's another interpretation of this evidence that better fits what we're seeing. And for me, that that concept is one of inheritance and longer timelines. 
So, you know, having the, the embracing the idea that maybe there was some inheritance going on in dynastic Egypt, that these guys started with some artifacts, maybe some architecture. For sure, they, they worked on these pyramids. They, you know, again, you've got to look at this through the lens of thousands of years of occupation of the dynastic civilization, then more thousands of years after that of quarrying and destruction and rebuilding and other cultures coming in and doing their thing on the sites. You know, these sites have been used as quarries and they've been pillaged for stone for for literally thousands of years. So you have to keep looking at it through that lens uh, and understand what it is you're seeing. But this is a, a huge contradiction in in the technological timeline. That And it doesn't, as I said, it doesn't just exist in pyramids, but we see the same thing when it comes to some of the other granite objects and artifacts uh, across Egypt. There's a whole category of different artifacts, columns, vases, bowls. Um, you know, statues. There's there's a, a number of these contradictions that really lean towards uh, a longer timeline and the concept of inheritance. And the one thing that I do like to to tell people is like, well, what do the Egyptians themselves say? Like, we've translated lots of hieroglyphs. We we understand that's a science now. What do they say? Well, that's exactly the story they tell. The Egyptian civilization and they viewed themselves as a legacy culture. They, they, their history, their own history, as they see it, stretches back nearly forty thousand years. Like we, we today say, well, they started around three thousand BC and they went for about three thousand years. They themselves run their history back ten times as far. They have a list of kings and rulers that goes back nearly forty thousand years. Yeah, and, and that, that was just a humbling experience to get to witness uh, Yusuf explaining. I think it was the the list of kings or the kings list or however yep. that, that was articulated. Yep. Uh, just just the sheer record of how ancient this potentially could be whether it's myth or metaphorical uh, mm-hmm. or not uh, the fact that there is some level of uh tracking that that pertains to the history that's that's far exceeding what what archaeology would suggest is is mind-blowing yeah and it and there's multiple sources for this too you have the palermo stone you have the uh, there's a there's a, a um uh, what's his name? There's a particular scribe, Manado, uh, the the scribe and and uh, priest Manado, who's t- who's referred to this story. Then you have the Turin Papyrus, what's known as the Turin Papyrus, that that actually lists these out, and they go back to you know two separate periods. There's one period called Zeptepi, which is essentially when the gods themselves walked the earth. Now the the capabilities in these time frames and the 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 things that they describe as happening to them could you know they interpret it as magic, but you could also interpret it as technology. Uh, you know, after that, they had the the period of the Shemsu Hor or the followers of Horus, again, semi-divine mystical beings with all of these amazing powers that, again, a primitive Bronze Age civilization like the dynastic Egyptians, and I, I don't really think, I think that's exactly what they were. That's ex- you would interpret that stuff as as being magical, like that's technology. Like magic is generally just technology we haven't understood yet. I mean, that's yeah. been the case throughout time, mm-hmm. and. There's so many other indicators when it when it comes to the pyramids um, that that suggest that there was something far more complex going on uh, deep in antiquity. There's a couple of good examples here I'd, I'd love to share. You know, one of them is the fact that the Great Pyramid actually is a, a pretty accurate scale model of the northern hemisphere of the planet. Not only that, it encodes the actual dimensionality of planet Earth as as we know it, and I'll explain how that happens. It's the Great Pyramid, you can kind of see its its angle here. I think this is the, um, what would this be, the west face? It sits on something called this sockle, and it's, I've highlighted this in blue here. So it's it's kind of like a little platform that the pyramid itself sits on. You can see the edge of the pyramid where the casing stones would have gone down, and you see this little platform that 
that the uh, the pyramid is kind of sat on top of. It's around a cubit high, which is 55 centimeters, roughly an Egyptian cubit. Now, what this does is it gives you two methods for measuring the perimeter length of the pyramid. So if you were to measure the, per- the full perimeter length of the pyramid, you can either measure it around the base of the pyramid or around the sockle, so the base of the sockle. Turns out when you, when you measure those two numbers and you compare them, it actually matches the ratio of latitude and longitude on the planet. You, it's actually a reflection of the shape of the Earth in that the Earth is an yes. oblate, oblate spheroid, right? It means because we spin, we're not, a perfectly, we're not perfectly uh, spherical. We're a little bit further around that east-west equator uh, than we are around like the, north, the north-south equator. So if you were to measure that distance around the center of the planet than, than the distance around the planet on the poles, it's a little bit longer east-west. So... You have this is how we measure the, the the Earth, right? This system of latitude and longitude. It means they're not square. So if you go down to what one quarter of one minute of latitude at the equator, you're a little bit further, or uh, sorry, a little bit shorter north to south than you are east to west, right? So three thousand forty three point five feet is one quarter of one minute of longitude at the equator. Now that's point one of a foot off the perimeter length of the pyramid with the sockle, and then you're point two uh, of a foot off the latitude measurement when you measure the pyramid length of the pyramid without the sockle. So the, the, the pyramid is essentially encoding the shape of the earth in its dimensions. And it's not just a coincidence either. Like this ratio is very accurate. Yeah. That's yeah, so nuts. And, and this is not an easy thing to figure out. Like we had to have satellites in space doing accurate surveys to really get down to this number. And it, cause we, we hadn't done math and we, we sort of calculated the, the, the equatorial length of the planet in the past and as we, it was funny because once we started to get into doing satellite measurements, this number, our numbers came closer and closer to the measurements of the Great Pyramid. Like we, as we got more accurate, it got closer to the numbers of the Great Pyramid. And that, that's not the only thing. Like this is, and this is far beyond this knowledge, far beyond the capabilities of what we know the dynastic Egyptians would have known about the planet. Not only that, but the Great Pyramid is a, essentially a scale replica or, or, or one to a 43,200 um, uh, model of the of the northern hemisphere. So if you take the height of the Great Pyramid and you multiply that number by forty three thousand two hundred, you get the polar radius of the Earth. In other words, the distance from the center of the Earth to the top of the North Pole. If you multiply the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid by forty three thousand two hundred, you actually get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. So there's a there's a scale here that's involved with the Great Pyramid, and it's reflecting that again the dimensions uh, of the planet. It's it's a remarkable degree of technology that seems to be encoded into this monument. 42,200 itself, this is a whole other discussion. If people want to get into it, I'd recommend following the work of Randall Carlson. Uh, I have a podcast with him where we get into the significance of numbers like 43,200 or 432 and 72. These are very significant numbers that show up time and time again through historical and cultural myths and legends uh, that, that, are, that, that indicate that there is significant celestial knowledge being embedded in religious and origin stories from cultures all around the world. They show up again and again and again, even in cultures that really have had no capability of measuring these things. A lot of them have to do with cycles of the heavens, long-term cycles of the heaven, things like the the procession of the equinox, which is a 26,000-year cycle that uh, essentially it's the wobble of the, of the planet that it takes us 26,000 years to go through one cycle these numbers relate very, they're very much involved with um, these types of measurements. And what it's indicating 
And there are great books like Hamlet's Mill uh, that, that go through this in excruciating detail. That it's indicating that this knowledge is embedded into the into cultures around the world, potentially from a common source, like a common ancestor. Again, mm-hmm. all of this stuff points back to the to this to this idea that there were there were there was a civilization or a people that deep, in deep antiquity that had a very sophisticated understanding of the planet, of the motions of the heavens, and they had amazing technological capability uh, to to basically execute on those. And then and then that knowledge was eventually disseminated into modern cultures or modern ancient cultures and then it comes down to us today these this these references also exist in the bible for example and it's it's if you consider that how would you get through a civilization or how would you pass down knowledge through things like a cataclysm through like uh, the the younger dryas when your civilization is going to end and maybe you knew it was coming like if you were looking at the stars and you saw that comet in the sky that was approaching that would be the way to do it you'd you you'd you would embed these tales into oral stories and and things that would be passed down in oral traditions through time. You might embed these elements and this data into architecture and into artifacts that you know are going to stand the test of time, things like giant stone pyramids. So it's it's really not until today's modern times where we've got enough knowledge, we understand the motions of the heavens, we can, you know, we we can we can put this stuff together and we can research it and actually start to make the discoveries and go, hmm, maybe there's maybe there are messages being passed down through time to us through ancient cultures and through some of these artifacts and monuments that we can still we can still observe, um, it's it's kind of remarkable when you get to it. So th- I think there's more and more evidence that points to it, this longer timeline, and the concept of um, of a, of a lost ancient civilization that was very advanced. Yeah, it, it, it's so clear just by like the sheer casual observer and 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 that being us, just our gut instinct is suggesting this is so wildly impossible for, yeah. for the way that ancient Egypt and and those cultures are articulated in the mainstream compared to these technologies. And it it does take this level of awareness to be able to actually grasp that because without the ability to understand, you know, geometry, you kind of look at it and you go, damn, man, those fucking Israelites were just really putting putting <laughs> putting it together. You know, we're taught putting the work in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Somebody's yeah, yeah. told that those the Israelites slaves. built the, uh, the freaking pyramids. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but it's it's wild. It's almost like it's almost like there was the ability to tap into some like you know divine protractor that mm-hmm. has sacred geometry embedded within it, and thus that that intelligence, that divine intelligence that was that we had the capacity to interact with back you know thousands and thousands of years ago was was more available or accessible uh, than cr- definitely now. Um, yeah maybe not available at all now but it's like it's so clearly <laughs> evident that there is this this other level of intelligence that was accessed or technology that was accessed that is something very foreign to us now yeah i just to piggyback on that um what i was thinking when you were talking about you know now we have satellites and we have the ability to go around the earth and to measure and to get these these measurements and make you know look at these different ratios and things it's almost like we're in our uh, technological ego in 2023 <laughs> or however, whenever we started yeah. doing this and, and picking up on this, because it seems like we're, you know, we've gotten a little too big for our britches where mm-hmm. we have the ability now to measure and to do these things with the amazing technology that we have. But it seems like we're still not answering or asking even, we're still not asking the right questions and all of the questions 
which is, you know, something that I love about all of this is like, you're bringing up more questions rather than just what we've like stamped, like, okay, right. this is what we all, you know, believe and we'll put into Google. Yeah, you, you're right. And, and that is a lot of it. It's, it does frustrate. I know it frustrates some people like, well, what's the answer? I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily the point right now, because one of the challenges, and this is, we see this, I think, in a lot of the response from the mainstream to some of these topics, and certainly the way we view the past, the arrogance and this technological big for our boots it's a great it's a great way of phrasing it because we have a very strong tendency to look at the past and even the very sophisticated elements of the past and try to look at it through this lens of like how would we solve this problem like what's out because we're assuming that we're superior our technology our, our culture our civilization is superior to everything that's come before so the answer must lie within how we would do it how our technology would solve this problem and I think the reality of, of the past and looking at some of these elements and some of the stuff you were talking about, Chase, with you know them tapping into other other realms of knowledge, I think that applies to technology as well. I, I th we know for sure that we'll we will know more in a decade, in a hundred years, in a thousand years about any any number of aspects of science. So therefore, there's plenty of science and, and technolo technological areas we don't know about today. I think some of the answers and some of the ways this this potential lost civilization may have functioned those answers may lie in those realms that are outside of our current you know set of understanding and outside of our capability and i think we should be open-minded enough to go back and look with that in mind um and i think that's honestly it may actually lead to us even learning something because there, there are for sure a number of of real conundrums that even that we couldn't solve today uh that, that we can't achieve there's a few little different elements. I have a bunch of videos that get into those aspects, but it's like you sort of, you know, Flinders Petrie and these guys that were first discovering them in the, you know, the uh, the the uh, the 1800s, late 1900s or early 1900s. They were scratching their head out, and and honestly, we even our best engineers and craftspeople and and experts today are scratching their head out today, saying we don't know how this was done. So you know, there's there's definitely, I think there was something else going on and it and it didn't look like us like the way that we've done it is not necessarily the same way that happened in the past and i do wish that more people would look at the past with a more of an open-minded approach to to that possibility yeah mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah so so clearly we're we're looking at uh, the mainstream version of how human history has played out mm -hmm. and even just through assessing the pyramids alone we're seeing some you know contradictory evidence that that may suggest something else happened and i want to get into to a little more of some of the other evidence that you've specifically yep. accumulated and looked into you know craftsmanship on maybe on a smaller scale and uh -huh. even some of it not even that much of a smaller scale due to the magnitude of what actually uh, is able to be put together like in some of the the sarcophagus and and some of these other you know you know just wildly amazing size and and sheer um volume that's been crafted in the way that it has but yeah. before we do maybe let's talk about hey friend i wanted to change the subject for just a minute to read something really important to you this is feedback we received from a woman named kelly one of our amazing users of immune intel ahcc she says so i've been taking ahcc for a little bit over a month and my skin has never looked so good i am 35 and have suffered from hormonal acne since i was a teenager i thought i would never get rid of my acne I just had my period and I have absolutely no pimples around my chin or jawline and my melasma is finally clearing up too. 
I have tried countless prescription and over-the-counter medications and have seen so many dermatologists with little improvement. Also, I feel like my hormones have balanced out. I am less irritable, as well as less inflammation going on in my body, decreased back pain, and bloating. I'm so glad I came across you on Instagram. Thanks for sharing the knowledge. Okay, here's one more, just because they light me up so much to share with you. This beauty is staying anonymous. She says, I learned about Immune Intel AHCC from you on a podcast, and in four months, it helped clear my persistent high-risk HPV that I've had for seven years. I love these two testimonials next to each other because it's a testament to the balancing and normalizing effect that AHCC has in each individual body. One woman was supported with her acne flares, and the other had support in clearing her high-risk HPV. I am consistently amazed by the power and intelligence of AHCC. To try Immune Intel for yourself, go to themedicine.com forward slash products, or just check the show notes below. Cheers, my love. You mentioned an a inherited technology or inherited history. So mm-hmm. while we're at this kind of moment of, all right, mainstream doesn't quite make sense, at least through this, the lens of, of how advanced these pyramids were, what does make sense? You mentioned inheritance. Yeah, so I I think what the and again there's multiple vectors that that I think are are, are suggesting this story and technological um, the the timeline and the contradictions we mentioned are certainly one of them, but also these stories of cataclysm and you can't you can't find an ancient culture ours included and, and our Judeo Christian religions have these same stories. Every single one of them almost talks about this idea that that our ancestors were wiped out in some cataclysm, be it flood, fire, something else, and then you know mankind was forced to start again. So you know we're telling the story of longer timelines, and it it gets you know interpreted and it's it's deified and all these other things as part of it. But it's a very consistent theme that exists from the the Hopi Indians of of North America to the Mahabharata of. Um, you know, Indian traditions to the Bible, to the Nordic Elder Edas, to Brazilian mythology, all over the world. Same, same story. I've got tons of examples we could get into. But yeah, the 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 overall theme and the premise, and of guys like Graham Hancock and what, and certainly me, I think the evidence supports this this interpretation of the past is that there was an advanced civilization, human civilization, at some point. This it was wiped out by cataclysm. It was gone. But small pockets of those people may have survived. And some knowledge, maybe even some artifacts and some capability was was kept alive in small pockets. And then eventually that, that stuff may have been used to kickstart the civilization in places like Egypt. Now, that's so you're, you're inheriting. So if you're the dynastic civilization, you're inheriting some architecture. You might be inheriting thousands of artifacts, statues, vases, columns, sites, you know, arch- all these types of things, potentially architecture like pyramids, like, uh, you know, megalithic structures. Same thing in in South America, although the, the timelines are different in South America, and you and I, I kind of look at dynastic Egypt as something of like a really advanced cargo cult. And cargo cults are like there's examples of them in the modern world. You might have a lost tribe in the Amazon or something that um, you know has an artifact, or they find a modern artifact, but they, and they find it useful, but they they can't use it in the way it's intended. It's like if you ever watched the back in the day, there's a movie called The Gods Must Be Crazy. You ever see that? Mm-mm. No. Hilarious. So it's essentially a, a Coke bottle 
a glass Coke bottle gets dropped out of a plane and a lost tribe in Africa kind of uses it and they find it really useful. They end up fighting about it and one guy ends up having the, the story is about his journey to drop it off the edge of the world, which is like, you know, a cliff edge off a mountain and things. But that's that's the concept of a cargo cult. And I think we're kind of looking at that with the dynastic Egyptians. Now, if you have some cultural memory of capability, so let's say these sites were functional, the pyramids did something, maybe they were energy generators. There's lots of theories and some very good ones that support that interpretation. Um, I certainly think there was some something functional going on with the boxes, the giant sarcophagus, the, what we would call sarcophaguses today. But as the dynastic Egyptians, you you can't you don't have the capability or the understanding to actually activate it to use it that way. But you have some cultural memory of something like that happening. It's you, you end up trying to replicate that through ceremony, through through you know just. Um, uh, that through significance and 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 making it religious, and you do a you know it's like it becomes this ceremonial aspect of life. You can the modern analogy I'd give is like well, if we went through a a cataclysm today, say younger dryas happens tomorrow, and our human our civilization gets wiped out, we're all knocked back to being hunter gatherers. Within a couple generations, you you might have people standing around a campfire carving a black rock to make it look like this. And dancing around the fire, hoping that they can turn it on because these black rocks could give you the answer to everything. Uh, every question you've ever had, you can talk to anyone in the world. You can look at the earth from anywhere in the world, you know, Google Maps, whatever. Like He's that's, holding up his cell phone for the listeners. Yeah, holding up a cell phone. That's right. So you, that's that's the that, that's what we might do. We'd be sitting around campfires talking about cell phones and plasma TVs like that was some <laughs> mythological thing that existed that no longer does. And maybe we're trying to replicate them. So. You definitely see that in Egypt. You have a whole category of artifacts and objects that are extremely advanced, that show incredible sophistication in their engineering, that require remarkable tools that some stuff we would be challenged to make today. And I'll get into some specific examples of that in a minute. But you also have another category of, of artifacts that are they're almost like imitations of those artifacts. And a lot of those came much later in the civilization. And those are explainable by the very primitive tools, the things like you know copper chisels, pounding stones, flint chisels, primitive methodologies. You have this tale of two industries that, that is spread across all these categories of Egyptian artifacts. You know, you've got sophisticated ones that don't match the tools and the techniques that we found in that civilization. And then you've got a, a whole category of artifacts that do. And they're often in the same dimension. So you have these, the one that I, want, I like to talk about is the granite vases, the bowls, the the the, the jars. Uh, the, you have an incredible array. And uh, I'll share this as well because this is worth seeing. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's these like are if, you've ever, if you've ever bought like fake Jordan shoes <laughs> from like China, yeah. they like pieces of shit when you get them and they're falling apart, but they're yeah. clearly close enough to the original. Yeah. Exactly. Well, these and there's a well, there's a big technological gap between these. So, so the interesting thing about um, the vases, and you can go to the Egyptian Museum or the British Museum. There, there's a lot of these. They're all over the place. But there exists this category of artifacts that come from the very earliest times of ancient Egypt, and in a lot of cases, they come from what you call pre-dynastic times. We know that some of these vases stretch back as far as fifteen thousand years ago. They've been found in sites that that are definitely pre-dynastic, basically Mesolithic times. Um, and and most of them then also were found in burials that are in the again the first second or third dynasty of ancient Egypt and they tend to disappear after that which is the interesting thing and and these are remarkable objects it's not pottery these aren't these aren't spun on a on a on a wheel 
they're carved from some of the hardest types of stone known to man. Mm. You know, granite, diorite, corundum, schist, porphyry, it's an endless list of them. These are these these are uh, rock crystal. That these are types of stone that are harder than steel. So you know, if you if you wow. measure the hardness of materials on the most scale of hardness, you know, steel's around a six to six point five. Some of these types of stones are seven, eights, and nines on the on the most scale. Uh, so very very challenging material. Uh, not only that, but it's not a consistent material. If you think of the way we carve precision objects today, we do it out of like steel, which is a very uniform material right it, it, the hardness doesn't vary it's well made these types of stones you can see these crystal occlusions and these different color patterns that means that the material itself is going from softer material to harder material in the stone matrix so it might be going from mica or horn blend to quartz and it's you know so there's implications on how you carve them now some of these vases are just absolutely remarkable and they were found in great numbers there was more than forty thousand of them found beneath what's uh -huh. called the, the step pyramid of Joza. And we were lucky enough to go down there uh, and actually go into these catacombs and tunnels. There's like six miles of tunnels beneath this yeah, pyramid. Nuts. And and there are still fragments of them available down there. Here's a picture of one that, that I took uh, when I was down there last time. And you can see the, the, older, the older photographs of the early excavations of this space where there were just thousands and thousands of these things discovered. Um, and, and this is, again, third dynasty, very early period of, uh, of ancient Egypt. The funny thing about them is, is that even in the mainstream story, they don't suggest that these were made in the third dynasty. There's a museum in Saqqara where this pyramid is, and on the wall there, it tells you that they say most of these were likely inherited objects. They were they were from older times that were inherited. Now they say, well, it was first and second dynasty, but I, you know, I don't think they're going back far enough because we do have examples of these objects that stretch back into those pre-dynastic times before the civilization even started. So. Joseph, the pharaoh, probably collected them all. He's like, these are amazing. Uh, they're valuable. I want them buried with me. And they, he pulled them out of these tombs, and then he had them buried with him, and that's where we find them. And even the mainstream uh, version of history says, well, he didn't have these made. These are clearly from earlier times. It's like, what earlier times? There's no evidence of that yeah. type of capability in those periods. Um, in terms of their technological sophistication, some of them, are remarkably thin like the, getting this type of stone down to this degree of thinness yeah. uh in fact there's some examples that have been measured to be as thin as 1 40th of an inch mm. very difficult this type of stone becomes very brittle when it's like this so carving uh this type of thing is a, is, is a massive challenge um this is the well-known schist disc this is made from schist it's just an incredible um form one of the more notorious ancient artifacts was found in a first dynasty tomb uh, a lot of it is reconstructed from pieces, uh, and then you know we've we've added sort of and and formed it uh, and put it back together. But this is making these sort of curves and getting this material, a brittle material like schist that's both very hard and brittle when thin, is an incredible challenge. Uh, some of these vases display just absolutely perfect balance symmetry. Uh, it looks like, like that one's floating. Yeah, it's it's um it's so well made and so well balanced that it's like it's standing on a like almost on like the tip of an egg. Yeah, like it's yeah. just the, the the bottom of this vase is just it's it's barely touching the 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 ground here. Here's a wow. here's an example of the bottom of one of my favorite vases, and again made from a remarkably hard material. Now these things exist. Here's a here's a rock crystal. Um, I don't know dish, I guess, but carving these ridges again. Uh, very, very difficult. You can almost see the tool marks in it too, like the, the centering tool marks. We saw that in the early example. So there's tube drill. Again, this is not something that 
is really attributed to those early dynastic periods. And some of them range in size from very, very, very large to very small, like down to like a thumbnail size, and then other ones that you'd probably take two guys to lift. Um, so there's a wide variety of these. And uh, I just wanted to point out something that, and maybe you're getting to this, and I, I mm-hmm. apologize if you are, but something you mentioned on on Rogan, uh, and you certainly mentioned it when we were in Egypt. But if you're if you're watching and seeing these vases, you you can see that they're not like it's not like a perfect circle. It's not even like uniformly shaped all the way right. around, and they they have handles which. They do. Also increases the degree of difficulty because if you yeah. think of something like spinning, which I know you just said isn't, it's not like pottery being spun where they're just like forming it with their hands. Yep. And the the handles, if you could speak to that. Yeah. So here's a, a good example of this tiny little one here that's translucent. Yeah. So a lot of the, so you got to remember too, the, the funny thing is, is that the Orthodox, again, the Orthodox Egyptologists do not attribute the use of the lathe or the wheel to the old kingdom Egyptians. So they, they think that these were made with just by pounding stones and grinding, not spinning. Now there, there's, there's undeniable evidence that they were turned would be the term. So turned on a lathe where either you're spinning the tool or you're spinning the work. Um, you actually have an, and Petrie has, has done Flinders Petrie is a, um, one of the early pioneering Egyptologists to explore this topic, as well as Chris Dunn, who's written several books on the topic there's undeniable evidence that they were in fact turned. We st- we see the tool marks on the insides of these vases. Uh, there's centering holes, there's centering marks, there's cusps that are left f- that from when the vase was recentered. There's undeniable evidence that they were in fact turned. But as you say, if you're spinning, like for example, this vase down that vertical axis, you can't carve the handles that way. You you have to you would have to leave a ridge or a bullnose all the way around the vase and then come back with a la- with a, another tool. And carve all that material away to shape the handle. So there's a multiple steps involved in how these things were constructed. Or, you know, perhaps if you go all the way with speculation, it, it may not have been a lay that might have been a five-axis mill that carved it all in the first place. But and and where where I'll go with this is the fact that we've recently, for the first time ever, actually measured one of these vases, put it under a a, a um a structured light scanner and measured it down to the thousands of an inch in terms of looking at its at its precision and the the results are truly profound like the, these were these were measured by professional metrologists metrology is the the study of measurement and mm. and the geometry of that vase and the relative surfaces uh, their precision relative to each other are, are literally in the thousands of an inch and this is not something that is even close to ever being um, repeatable or achievable by hand yeah, it's it's suggestive that these things were made by some form of machine. You, it's you've got a couple problems to overcome when you when you're trying to carve objects like this. One yeah. is how you're carving this material. Like it's harder than steel. You've got to have something that's harder that's that's able to deal with the going from soft to hard material, and then you've got to have something guiding that tool that is so precise that it can maintain geometry and you know um, geometric precision down to a you know a thousandth of an inch now to give you some context uh, the width of a human hair is between two and three thousandths of an inch so you're talking about precision that's half the width of a human hair uh and 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 that's that's literally that's you know incontrovertible undeniable data that we've just found i just put a video out about this it's generated a fair bit of angst amongst egyptologists and i'm sorry for the light coming in here by the way it's just that time of day here (laughs) just lit up by the sun um but yeah, that's 
that's what's that's what we're finding with with these vases. We actually scanned a, a pre-dynastic uh, vase, one that one that was around and was created for sure before the dynastic Egyptian ever started. When we don't know, but it was found in a pre-dynastic burial, uh, and so the interesting thing is there's a whole bunch of other aspects to these vases. These, this, for example, is a pre-dynastic granite vase. The, the one, the blue one on the right. It's not granite. It's another very hard type of stone. You would often find these in burials next to very simple pottery. Now, this this other vase that's next to it is pottery. It's made with clay. It's not even turned on a pottery wheel. It's made by hand. Mm. Mm. It's really simple. And they've even painted it to look like granite. They've yeah. added the dots to it to make it look like granite. Mm. This is clear imitation. You know, we we're talking about like imitating a cell phone yeah. around a campfire. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what we're seeing here with these vases. Like whoever was making vases in pottery, if you found one of these hard stone vases, you would be astounded by it. Mm-hmm. You would know immediately how valuable it was and how it, how significant it was. So you start to imitate it. And we see this time and time again. We have so many of these out-of-place artifacts that go way back into time and they're displayed in cabinets next to bone and beads, these, these primitive uh, artifacts. Here's a good example. One of my favorite things in the museum it's a tube of lapis lazuli. It's hollowed out. It's perfectly made. And it's got a gold sheath on it. And it's just labeled pre-dynastic. And you can see the bone artifacts and the beads next to it. It's it's an out-of-place artifact. Like yeah. it, it's something that's technologically sophisticated, well beyond the capabilities of anyone who's using bones and beads to make. <laughs> but but because it's found in that burial and it's found in that location, they say, Well, yep, they made it. And there it is. And what are they saying to some of this evidence, as I'm sure this is just continuing to create momentum? Well, so it's funny because I did just the last couple of days I put this video out. We've been working on it for a while. These guys had scanned. And in fact, I can I can show I'll show you some pictures that nobody else has seen uh, real quick here. This is a pre-dynastic granite vase. And it was scanned. Where's the ATOS? Uh, here we go. So it was st- scanned in a, in a structured light scanner, which is one of these machines. Mm. Right, so it's it's like a robotic arm, and this was, and this is these machines are sophisticated. They they get used in the aerospace industry to to create precision parts. They they run you well and truly upwards of a quarter million dollars. Uh, here's here's an example of this vase being scanned on a structured light scanner. Uh, there now the results that we came out with are just utterly remarkable. Like like you, there's we we I went to some depth explaining them on the video, and anyone who's interested should check that out. But. The the I, I expected some pushback because this is it's actually undeniable data that shows you that the actual the, the the precision that's evident in the manufacturing of this pre-dynastic vase is such that there's because there's a lot of people out there that are like hey you can rub two stones together in a technique called lapping and make it pretty flat or you know you can take a, a chisel and a flint chisel and, and make an inside corner in a piece of granite and there you go mystery solved. That's not the way to approach this thing. That the you have to you have to you have to investigate the ancient artifacts, including the most difficult aspects of their construction. So what we've done here is really set the bar uh, of what that what that means, and mm-hmm. it, it means that you have to be able to create surfaces surfaces of this vase that are that can be mapped to geometric shapes that have a relative either perpendicularity or parallelism or circularity. Uh, or or an axis measurement that is consistent with the other parts of the vase within these thousands of an inch. And believe me when I say that is not remotely possible by hand. So so there are some people out there that have like looked at, well, I'm going to make, 
I'm going to make uh, I'm going to make one of these by hand. And a few people have done that, and those sort of experiments are good. But the results are a world of difference apart. Like you just you cannot achieve this type of precision by hand. So the implication is something else was going on. Like this is an advanced artifact that takes that would challenge us to make today. Even with our best equipment, it is extremely challenging to make something with the tolerances that are as tight as what's been shown to exist on this vase. And this is more than 5,000 years old. So you cannot do this by hand. So the pushback that I've gotten, long story short, is of course you just get, well, if the vases are fake or you guys are just making this up or you're lying. It's, it's, it's anything. It pushback is generally anything to, to do other than deal with the data. Yeah. So, so like, they start to attack you. Like, as- That's the drawing board, guys. <laughs> Jesus. You're like, I'm doing the work that y'all should be doing. You've got, you know, letters behind your name that I don't have. And somehow I'm going deeper into the Egyptian evidence than you are with all of this, these vases and things that you that you guys are um, diving deeper into and discovering that there's a margin of error that's half the width of a human hair, which is mm-hmm. like mind boggling. What are you coming out of the, these experiences like, is it strengthening your theory? Like, do you have a new theory of what's going on or what happened? Like, where does this new evidence put you? Well, I, I'm personally, um, it's, it's, it's almost vindicating to see these sort of results because, I mean, I, I have been trying to analyze. It's, it's exactly the type of testing that I've been calling for for years now. And not just me, other people too. But, but for the longest time, I've said we should be applying the best of our modern tools and technology to try and investigate the, the 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 manufacturing of some of these complex objects. And a lot of my work has really focused on the nature of precision and and the obvious signs of things that we can measure and that we can analyze from the outside, barring this type of of, of analysis. So then finally when we can come to the point where okay, we've actually got our hands on one of these from a private collection. And we can get it analyzed to this this degree. And it turns out that the results are exactly what we thought they might be, which is utterly remarkable and profound and entirely devastating to anybody that says, oh, these were just made with simple sort of Bronze Age tools and tech. Then that's that's really vindicating. Like that's like that's I think it's it's great. It's exactly the type of thing we should be doing because in general, Egyptologists and the curators of these museums that have the access, they control the access to these artifacts, have no interest in exploring or investigating the the nature of the engineering and and uh, manufacturing of these vessels they don't care they're more interested about what did i find in it what's written on it what's what's poorly what what are the glyphs that have been poorly scratched into this amazing object say than ever um really investigating how they were made because it's a it's a real challenge to it because the, you got to remember that again this mainstream story of history that these guys are the the you know self-proclaimed experts in it's it's a it's a bit of a house of cards because when you start you start making discoveries like this and these discoveries like this vase and the precision it, it shows has the implications of saying those tools and techniques that you say made these not possible something else is going on so it's, it's kind of like it's it's changing some of the foundations of the whole story of saying well no there was no one before the dynastic egyptians they made everything with pounding stones and and uh you know and, and copper chisels but you, you know now you've got evidence that directly contradicts this, and and they've been barring the work and barring this investigation, this this type of work for for decades now. There's been just no interest. You you can't get your hands on these objects to to do this type of work. 
uh, and it's taken uh, you know a private collector who has who does have a few of these artifacts and and was willing to let them be scanned like that's what it's been taking so yeah it's to me it's 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 great like i it exactly um puts us in the right direction and i hope it stirs up more interest like i i hope that whether i'm right or wrong uh, let's let's get some of these artifacts let's get into the museums like it's completely harmless it's it's a literally a light scan all right real talk if you're anything like me finding quick foods that are actually healthy and intentionally sourced is not the easiest task these days take something like jerky 99% have added sugars, preservatives, and are sourced from conventional, non-organic farms from stressed and possibly diseased animals. Yikes. Okay, what about protein or granola bars? Oftentimes these bars have way more sugar than protein, and the protein itself is usually bottom of the barrel, cheap, and low quality. We used to have the hardest time while traveling, like what the heck are we supposed to eat when we need something quick? Then I discovered Paleo Valley. Hallelujah. Chase and I's favorite when we need something convenient, like during travel. The beef or turkey sticks and superfood bars are literally an answer to my prayers. They are made from real whole foods with no added sugars or mystery ingredients and are super delicious. Even kids love them. Get this, Paleo Valley sources their meat and their bone broth protein exclusively from organic regenerative farmers. The animals are pasture-raised, grass-fed their entire life, and the farmers themselves are practicing regenerative farming. This means that they are actually healing our Earth's soil rather than killing it and stripping it like conventional farms. I feel so good knowing that I'm blessing my body with high-quality foods and supporting our Earth and future generations by supporting Paleo Valley. If you want to try for yourself, you can use the direct link in the show notes to check out Paleo Valley and use the code MEDICINE, that's M-E-D-I-C-I-N for a discount, or just check them out in our medicine cabinet at getmimifit.com. We're bringing you only the best, boo. Cheers. It uses structured light. It's not going to hurt it. Um, it, it, we can only stand to learn stuff from it. So I, I think the intention we have is to build up a body of work. If we can get access to more of these vases, more of these objects, we can learn more about their construction and their manufacturing and draw more conclusions, you know, that, that, that show us, you know, what it really took to make some of these things. And, the, you know, the challenge is now out there. After this video, we're going to release the, the STL file, essentially the CAD file for it. Uh, with all of the dimensions down to that level of precision, and put the challenge out there. It's like who make it? Like, yeah. Try and make it even in, in from steel or aluminum. Mm-hmm. It would be tremendously challenging to make that on a modern five-axis mill. But if you want to try and hand make it from granite, go for it. Like let's let's yeah. do it. And and because I can guarantee, <laughs> from my personal opinion, no one's ever going to make anything this precise. It's just not remotely possible. A lot of people seem to think, well, they just sat around for 50 years and did nothing but this type of work. You don't, this type, this half a, the width of a human hair. You're to, and you, by the way, it's not just a surface we're talking about. You're talking about the relative geometry of aspects of the vase. So yeah. it's half the width of a human hair off being perfectly perpendicular or parallel with the top of the vase at the bottom of the vase. Like maintaining that geometry 
and understanding the nature of that precision is is part of what I tried to convey in the video that I put out about it. Yeah, it's it's those are the difficult aspects of these artifacts, and we see that also in other artifacts, at least as best as we've been able to measure them. Things like boxes, statues, columns. Uh, so there's it's evidence for a very sophisticated manufacturing system that was capable of producing just remarkable degrees of precision degrees that we've only been capable of producing ourselves in recent decades and in play and particularly in just in industries like aerospace like that's what we're talking about it's very sophisticated and the evidence is getting stronger and stronger for it so yeah i, I think it's great <laughs> like this this was i was so happy when these guys contacted me and the timing worked out amazingly because i got to talk about this on on joe rogan uh, I sort of introduced it to everyone on Joe Rogan, and then that's driven a lot of interest in this video where I've just put out showing like, all the nitty gritty details of it. Yeah, yeah, you were you were absolutely dunking. Yeah, you you were like grinning ear ear to ear watching yeah. you on Rogan because it was just like watching Rogan's face and then like your face, like watching yeah, yeah. him. It was it was awesome. <laughs> you know you. something something that was showcased on the trip to Egypt that um, is supportive of all the things that you're saying. Um, you know, Yusuf. Uh, our Egyptian uh, local guide said it numerous times. You know, don't ever underestimate the um, capa the capabilities, capabilities and the capacity of of the dynastic Egyptians. And you're able to see that. You're able to see the craftsmanship of of what you're saying. Fifty years, hundred years, generational craftsmanship that's been passed on and on. It's fucking insane. It's it's absolutely incredible. But you're still clearly able to see something as that is human made with an artistic expression that is incredible and beautiful, but human nonetheless compared to some of these others, but full of errors that are larger than a human hair. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's a very good point. And it's, it's, I'm not, and, and you got to admit, yes, the dynastic Egyptians did amazing work. Like that was a, that was one of the, the greatest civilizations to have ever existed. I mean, they built Karnak temple, that huge soaring, you know, sandstone pylons and things that are like, you know, 60 feet high. Yeah. yeah. They built, you know, all of, and the, the story of the vases, like after those, like I said, those granite and real hard ones disappeared. But after that, most of the vases are made from alabaster and white calcite, and they're utterly beautiful and they're amazing. It became a high art form. And it's just, it's undeniably the work of just master craftsmen that, yeah, it's like you have generations of people working at that stuff, but they don't show the same characteristics of precision that, that, that the earlier ones do. And the same thing applies to some of the other work. But undeniably, yeah, the, the dynastic Egyptians are such a beautiful. Uh, thing to go and witness and you know the temple of Seti the first and Dendera these huge temples that are full of glyphs and paintings and color I mean that's all dynastic work and it's just it's remarkable and it's one of my favorite parts of going there too like it's I'm not discounting what the dynastic Egyptians did but there yeah. is a delta like there is this also later on in the civilization they had access to iron I mean they had a lot of these a lot of these a lot of these craftsmanships and techniques became high art forms but there's still this big delta between the precision objects and then what they did. And that's what I tend to focus on. Um, there's, st there's still stuff that isn't explainable, even by the capabilities that they had even late in their civilization. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, yeah. You should not, you should not uh, underestimate the capabilities of the dynastic Egyptians, as Yusuf says. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other thing, um, cause it's easy to just, be like, oh, these assholes in in archaeology and academia. Like, why aren't they looking at this? And you you've done a great job of articulating just how the system works and and how 
uh, tied to their identity they are with with the amount of money and structure and years and dedication and yeah actual, people have built their whole life le- on right teaching these and, and legitimate work that's mm-hmm. been done but there's this layer of context that's lost because you and, and others are looking at some of these things from the perspective of your lanes of genius that you know maybe an archaeologist wouldn't possess like uh the the level of engineering that would be required the the level of even just technology at large your history in it being able to being able to clearly see how technological evolution looks um, on a linear scale and seeing that there are massive discrepancies here and so uh, while there is dogma like involved and there's some of these guys probably have you know egos that are you know through the ceiling um there is a level of like well they're just lacking certain data points of context in order to evaluate these things on a at a holistic scale yep no it's a great point you're right and uh and I don't want to disparage. You I mean, like I said, I think there's issues with the with the the science in general, like archaeology, Egyptology. There's definitely, and I know Graham Hancock talks about the same thing. Definitely issues with the way that that system works. The problem is, is that you, I often say this, you, you wouldn't trust an archaeologist to to engineer the chair that he's sitting on. But but if it's an ancient chair, he's going to claim ownership and and dominion over all aspects of it. That's the <laughs> issue. I do wish that they would take more seriously the opinions of the actual experts like engineers, craftsmen, stone carvers and cutters, people that know that that, that are the subject domain uh, experts. And I, I interview and talk with a lot of guys like that. Uh, and that's, that's what I, I hope is, you know, should, should be the way forward. And I also don't disagree with a lot of what archaeologists say, like the, the way they've, we, we have such a good understanding of dynastic Egypt, like how the civilization worked, its timelines, its rulers, how people live their daily lives, all these things. They're correct. I mean, I don't have any dispute with any of that. It's it's mostly about what happened before that and and how much of that stuff they inherited, right? Um, you know, because mostly at the end of the day, archaeology is kind of like a it's it's more like a it's not really a hard science. It's it's an interpretation of a very loose loose and sparse set of evidence. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's not like a hypothesis experiment result that you get in say chemistry. You, you're really piecing together. It's almost like a, a puzzle that you're putting together like it's a court case. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. a, it's a trial that's going on and your, your, your job is to present the version of events that you think happened based on the best evidence. My, my problem with it mostly is is that they stop looking at a lot of the evidence. It's like, this, it's like a court case that never ends. There's more evidence keeps coming up and some of that evidence is definitely in the engineering realm or it might be coming from catastrophism or it might be coming from you know the ancient maps and, and the evidence for something sophisticated going on in the past or the extension of the human timeline. And that stuff just doesn't get factored into when I, I think it, it should be. And, you know, it's, I, I understand why it's happening. To some extent, it's the nature of the discourses changing. You know, it used to be back in the Victorian era the, the you know, there was a lot more open-mindedness in Egyptologists because they were just talking with each other in these academic halls and then, uh, you know, up until what the last real century, we started to get these books and alternative, independent researchers putting their opinion out there. And now we have the internet. We have punters like me that can get an audience <laughs> and make a case. And to some extent, I think they they see that control of the story and the narrative slipping out of their fingers. So you get a very visceral response. Yeah. Um, and and also, I think archaeologists some of them at least the, the, the guys in 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 academia to, and i'm sure this applies to not all of them but some of them you know their, their sense of self-worth and and personal power is attached to their position as an expert on a story which is all it is 
history is like a, this story that you've put together and you're the expert on it. It's kind of like a priest in a religion. If you go up to a priest in a religion and say, well, your God doesn't exist or yeah. you know, you, everything you said about them is wrong from a fundamental level, you're probably going to get a strong response. And so there's a little bit of that going on in the discourse today and it's unfortunate and I wish there was more open debate and discussion and I think there's a place for that. Uh, I don't necessarily think that place is is YouTube and people making YouTube videos about each other. So I don't respond to like people make videos about me. I don't respond to it. I'm not, that's not the place for the debate. Um, I'm just presenting my ideas and putting them out there and, and uh, putting them forward. I'd, but there's absolutely a place for debate and discussion on, on a lot of this new evidence. And that's, we're, we're trying to foster some of that with the cosmic summit. And I know Hancock's organizing a, a debate on for Rogan that's coming up. Oh, uh, and yeah, that, we were saying that when we were watching, yeah. we we're like, if anyone can, you know, get a debate going, it's Rogan. Like, okay, let's invite Ben and Graham and Randall, and then we'll yeah. invite three of them, you know, mainstream archaeologists. And it's like, let's just have a civil discussion. Um, but, uh, you know, to your point, it, it's not just about the the facts and the figures and the stats and the, the you know, it, it's about the identity. It's about I have attached my life and livelihood to this story. And if this story is wrong, then my much of my life and work in academia has been uh, maybe could be possibly proven to be a sham or be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the reaction you get, but that's, and they're very defensive about that story, but I don't think that's, Honestly, I, I, they're not wrong about things like the civilizations that they that they study. It's just the basis for where they came from, yeah. And the and what was inherited and what happened before. And it's like they're trying to claim dominion over all of it. And I don't think they'd be treated that way, even if they were to open up right. and be no and be and be open about the evidence. Say, you know what? Like, yeah, there was p- probably something else going on before these times. I but it's you're right, and it, I I do have hope though for like the next generation i've been contacted by a lot of archaeology archaeology students and people that are going to be the next generation of the establishment of academia and i think i think they're going through college and and they're you know i think they've got no choice but to face some of the questions being raised by guys like graham hancock and by this work i just think and and certainly the, the the messages and the the correspondence i've had there's a lot more open-mindedness, so maybe it's just a case of well, the next generation's gonna we're gonna get there and we'll be able to embrace some of this in a bit more of an open-minded fashion. But I mean, maybe it'll take the next generation. We'll see. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. I don't think I don't think this thing lasts forever. And it's look, archaeology is by no means the only scientific field that suffers from this type of <laughs> yeah, right. embedded yeah. dogma, right? It's one hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, like, I would imagine so much time and energy is, is really spent in this sort of brick wall that you keep running into. Um, but, but beyond that, like, why is it important that we get into the details of what potentially could be a, a misled or misrepresented history of humanity and, and how important is it for us as, you know, humans in 2023 to look for the real version of where we came from well i think there's a few reasons this is obviously the old the old axiom of like people that don't understand the mistakes of the past are doomed yep. to repeat them um so there's always there's always an element of that in, in involved in it um but i you know i think it, it gets to a, the nature of a, of a few of our fundamental questions as well like it's like why are we here where did we come from what's our what's our purpose i think i think getting into these details 
helps to address some of those types of fundamental issues. But I kind of briefly mentioned it up front, but I, I do think it's important just from the perspective of the general zeitgeist of understanding that our, our civilization's place in our history. Like, I just think that we totally, it's not like something we think about in the front of our brains, but for sure, everyone's been taught. And if you ask someone, where did we come from? What's our part? We have this general understanding that we went from the stone age to now, like from, from the stone age to space shuttles, to striped toothpaste, whatever, right. From on this more, I mean, it's ups and downs in reality, right. But it's this linear path that goes from 6,000 years ago to now, and I think that just is like, well, that's it's a almost like a preordained path. It's how we got here. It's the it's the natural evolution. I don't have to worry about anything. We're just this is what civilization looks like. Now, I do think that if more people fundamentally understood that it's this cyclical relationship between, you know, cataclysm and civilization, a rise and fall, like this, I call it the the cosmic hamster wheel of human civilization. Every so often the hamster falls off. And it's it's that's that would that could have the effect ultimately of of affecting our priorities. Like it's you know it's yeah. like the the movement that you talk about climate change or whatever, whether you agree with it or not. I mean it's it's becoming a pervasive understanding and in, in, in the youth and in the next generations, and it's it's and it's affecting the way that we create policy and 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 treat our environment, and it's 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 having yep. all these implications. This could be something similar in terms of like. We've had advanced civilizations before. They were wiped out because it turns out we live in a cosmic shooting gallery <laughs> that has all sorts of uh, threats coming at it on you know long enough time frames, whether it's the sun or it's super volcanoes or it's it's cosmic impacts or whatever it is. But these things happen, and we're learning to happen more and more frequently. And oh, by the way, it looks like we've actually been here before and been wiped out, knocked back to hunter gatherers and small mm -hmm. populations in the past. And if we want to survive, and if we want to ensure our long term future, if we're interested in that, then maybe we spend a little less money worrying about the next election cycle and the quarterly results and building tanks to right. fight with each other. Yeah. And maybe we focus a bit more of our energy on working together to to spread out, to get into space, to understand the the challenges of our of our cosmic environment and try to conquer them. Now you start to some of that is starting to happen at a very slow rate. Like we're paying more attention to nearby space. You know, they've gone out and done the the DART mission where they deflected a they tried to deflect a, a, a an asteroid. All these are good things, but I just you know the it's a but it's a tiny sliver of a fraction of a of the budget and the money that we're putting into all these other, I think ultimately meaningless endeavors, you know, fighting wars and beating yeah. beating on each other and 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 othering people and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, but and again, like I said, I, I think it's very altruistic and it's a long term goal. But if you could change that perception of what it means to be a human civilization. Maybe that that shifts our priorities, and you can. And again, whether you agree with it or not, with things like climate change, we see that happening. Yeah. Like it's so pervasive now, and it's you know you know that future generations, it's a huge part of how they live their lives and of how we treat the environment and how you act. Yeah. So I, I think it I think it fits into that battle. And for me, well, me personally, I'm fascinated by it. I'm very you know I'm deeply interested in it. But I think there's a you know the altruistic side of it. That's that's the long term goal. Yeah, I mean, when you stare at something of this magnitude, that is this mysterious. It's it's like a psychedelic. I mentioned at the start of the show, it's like staring at at the top of a mountain over a vast landscape, and you realize perspective, and you realize, man, if having having a, a more broad view of this life experience makes me rethink where I'm putting my time, energy, and resources. 
And I think that we all get too tunnel visioned and get, you know, too connected to our very, very short sight of, of what life means and, and, you know, how we dedicate our time, energy and resources and something even shit, even just our three weeks in Egypt uh, did that for me uh, Mm -hmm. without drugs and uh, (laughs) just, just diarrhea really. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Um, But it, but it really, it's like, it's, it's, it helps you orient back into your day to day life in a way that's like, what am I really doing with my time? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's been, it's fantastic. Like that's, yeah, it, it, it's, it scratches some sort of fundamental itch. It certainly does that for me. Like I, I, I love it. Like, it's just, I love getting the chance to go to these places. I have the same experience every time. Like it's always a new experience for me that I see something I didn't see before and it takes you someplace else. You get invigorated by it. Um, Yeah. It's a great, the, the concept, I think that, there's lots of ways to have the effects of, you know, a psychedelic experience. There's lots of ways that that, that can impact in your life. And this is, you. I, I like that description of it. That's that's what it does. It does change the way your brain is wired for a bit and then gives you a fresh perspective on everything else. And yeah, that's that's always important. So what, um, um, also, we talked a lot about Egypt, obviously, because we were just there with you. Mm-hmm. What other sites are you looking into? You know, Atlantis is one that gets brought up a lot. Um, and it was relevant in the conversation with with Rogan, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's not just Egypt, right? We've got we've got. It, uh, it happens to be kind of the most mainstream showcase of some of this. But where else are, are you looking? Where else should people be yeah. seeing their attention if they're interested? Egypt's Egypt's the best. I mean, Egypt is kind of like the, the the top of the list for a lot of that stuff. And there's nothing quite like the pyramids and Giza or anywhere in the world. But there is tremendous evidence for this. You know, lost civilization being a global presence you have very consistent megalithic by megalithic list these huge cyclopean blocks that are that are put together with insane precision you can't stick a razor blade between them uh there's lots of there's lots of evidence for that all around the world from lebanon to easter island turkey i mean the whole the, some of the earliest and oldest civilizations like gobekli tepe in turkey i'm going to turkey in april uh for the first time and awesome. that's that that should have shifted the date of civilization back to like 10,000 uh, 10, years ago. Uh, it didn't. We just, the, the academics just changed the definition of hunter-gatherer, turns out. That's, that's a whole other story. It's, but, but one of the other best examples to me, like South America, Central America, but in particular, South America, Peru, Bolivia, there's just tremendous megalithic works and it has, it has a strong resemblance and consistency with what you see in Egypt. A lot of the same um, building techniques, I guess, we used. You have a lot of the same characteristics of, walls and 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 structures being made from a single type of stone that's come from a long distance away and it's put together with this remarkable precision there's absolutely a sto- a similar story in south america of a, a technological mismatch it's it, it's even more obvious in south america like it, it to me it's once you see uh the difference in the technological levels in south america it becomes impossible to unsee it it's and you have, because in Egypt, you have a civilization that went for 3,000 years. In South America, you, you're talking about the Inca in general in Peru, that was roughly 150 years old as a civilization, mm. a very brief time it existed. And they more or less attribute most of everything to them. But there's this there's this chalk and cheese night and day difference in, in what you see there. Uh, I could show you some pictures even, but it's like very, very primitive little small stones with mud mortar on top of these massive megalithic ruins of these huge precise granite blocks that have been put together in all these polygonal walls. Wow. Uh, it's night and day. 
and you can very obviously see that the Inca were in were repairing and trying to rebuild a lot of these sites, and they weren't they didn't make them. So there's a there's a really a, a, there's a true lost history uh, in South America. We don't have we don't know. There's a huge gap. I think Egypt 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 the dynastic civilization you you can't you can't disconnect them from what I would call the megalithic builders, whether it's Atlantis or whatever, like the lost civilization. The Egyptians are connected to them. They talk about them in their own history. They stretch their own past back to them. And I think they're connected from in fact, I think they even get their iconography, their culture, what we would we would look at and say that's ancient Egyptian, like the statues, all of that. I think a lot of that comes from that original culture. Mm. Versus in Peru and places like that, you have a huge gap in time. I think a lot of that stuff there could be just as ancient, pre-cataclysm. But then you have this huge gap in time because South America was devastated by this cataclysm, and I just don't, I just don't think you you've literally got thousands and thousands of years that that went by with nothing, nobody, until you you do get a primitive, the rise of of a relatively primitive culture like the Inca, which was only in the fifteen and sixteen hundreds, like not even that long ago, five hundred years ago. Yeah, and and they're now finding these abandoned megalithic ruins and rebuilding them, and they they exist for about one hundred and fifty years until the Spanish come along. And murder everybody, and uh, and uh, you know that's then our modern civilization gets built on top of that. It's it's actually a remarkable place. Cusco, uh, in the highlands of Peru, is one of my favorite cities in the whole world. I think it's one of the most ancient and most unique places you can visit because you have in the city center there, in the streets, you have megalithic construction, you have Inca construction, you have colonial Spanish, and you have modern, and they're all piled wow. up on top of each other, and you can uh-huh. clearly see the layers. Wow, it's, it's amazing. It's very, it's it's. I say very unique. It's unique. Yeah, it's, it's um, it's a remarkable place. But you see the same thing. Easter Island, um, megalithic builders. The the uh, the the um, the Moai there, right? They're built the, the big stat, big granite statues. They're uh, they're on top, standing on top of megalithic walls. Uh, the Temple of Jupiter at at the Baalbek in Lebanon. They they attribute it to the Romans, but it's sitting on top of a foundation that's made up of stones that weigh 900 tons. And there's, there's, there's stones in the quarry that weigh like 1,500 tons, well and truly beyond the capability of the Romans. And they didn't, I think they just built their stuff on top of this pre-existing foundation. There's evidence for some of this stuff in Russia. There's, there's you know, I think, I think a lot of it uh, may well be underwater now. Like this is the thing. During that cataclysm, the sea levels rose three to 400 feet all around the world. So, you know, you've got the, the Sunda Shelf off Indonesia, which was a huge uh, area of, of land, thousands if not millions of square miles of, of land that that uh, that was above ground now is underwater at, at this point. Um, Antarctica, there's crazy evidence in ancient maps that, that, yeah. that, that show you the coastline of Antarctica and, and they've been matched ex- very precisely to what's under the ice today. Like, and these these maps come from ancient times that are drawn from even more ancient source maps that are now lost to us. Hey friend, you may have caught on already that Chase and I both love finding the true medicines of the earth in the form of superfood powders, extracts, tinctures, and other health products. We love sharing about the trusted high quality brands and products that have truly made an impact in our health and overall well-being. It can seem overwhelming, I'm sure, so we're making it really simple for you by compiling them all into one place. We call it the medicine. 
Nielsen cabinet. If you go to getmimifit.com and in the main menu at the bottom, you'll see the medicine cabinet or just check the show notes below or my Instagram link tree. You'll see a full lineup sorted by brand of all of our favorite health products researched and vetted in one convenient place. You'll also see that we include details on why we love each product and how we use it in our daily lives. And for most brands, we have a discount code just for you. Click on the photo of any product and it will take you right to their website. We try a lot of different products, but only the best make it into our medicine cabinet. I hope you love it. Cheers, boo. Through the, the the fire of the Library of Alexandria, things like that, there's there's actually tremendous evidence in some ancient maps that show, you know, we were mapping the earth and the earth looked very different at some point in the past. So Yeah, I know yeah. Kirk talks about that a little bit in, in does. The Apocalypse. Um, when... when you're entertaining the funnest of theories for how all of this happened. You know, what, what are some of the ones that, you know, you perk up over and then where do you kind of place your, uh, bet, weight bet <laughs> at this point on what, on just what happened? Yeah. What, like how did these, the, the, the level of technology, is it ancient aliens? You know, is it, mm-hmm. is it a version of human that just had different capacities for connecting with, uh, intelligence in some way, like how did these things get formed? Um, and then maybe we can get into like, what are they for? Okay. Well, I mean, it's all speculation, right? I, yep. I, I try to be pretty clear about when I'm speculating. Um, so I, first, first of all, I don't, I'm not a, I, it's not ancient aliens for me. I don't need aliens to explain this. Now that's not to say that I don't believe in aliens. I, I think, I think it's a mathematical certainty that life exists in the universe outside of us. Uh, I think there's something to the UFO, UFP phenomenon. Like what what that is, I don't know. Is it black projects? Is it, you know, is it is it reverse engineered craft that landed in Roswell? Is, is it actually, you know, visitors from other dimensions or space? I don't know. I think there's something going on. Um, yeah. I definitely not, learned a lot on our Egypt trip with some of the other guests. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 Marty. Who were complete yeah, yeah. experts. I'm like, oh, there's lunch and every day there's a new theory. Like, okay, <laughs> listen to this, you guys. Just hear me out. <laughs> Yep, yep. Marty's deep into that world. Yeah. Uh, so look, but I don't need it. And and you know, even Bob Lazar on Rogan said like one of the craft that they were working on at Area 51 was from an archaeological site. So it's like this inference that maybe these were um, existing back in ancient times. And why not? But I don't. I'm not. You know, I don't think these are. You, you require alien technology to build this stuff. I just think you need humans, and you need um, technology, and. When I say humans too, I, I am open to the possibility that it wasn't Homo sapiens sapiens. Like it might have been. We know that our our cousins, if you like, our our the other hominids had bigger, like Neanderthals had bigger brains than us. Like there's the Denisovans, there's the Homo floresiensis. We keep finding more complex versions of humans that are extinct now that that did once exist. You've got this whole elongated skull phenomenon that happens in South America. I do. I, I'm not discounting the possibility that it wasn't necessarily us. And maybe that that other type of human had other capabilities. Graham Hancock certainly goes down that route uh, and gets it. You know, they throw it in his face all the time. He's purely speculating as well because he he thinks it c- could be connected to mental powers or something like this. For me, I, I I don't go down that route so much. I think it's explainable by technology. I think it's in a lot of cases probably technology that we wouldn't recognize today. It may be technology like I I almost look like we our civilization we have a 
electromechanical approach to problem solving, right? We, we do everything a certain way. We're very advanced in, in certain aspects of technology. Now, maybe the speculation could go that the, the, that the ancient civilization may have evolved down a more organic route. Like they might have been able to use organic materials. Why they work in stone and not in composite materials. They were, very, they were able to very easy, easily manipulate stone, however they did that. Uh, I think I think for sure they were able to work in that material in an easier fashion than we can, because they've just done so much in it. Like, and and so there's whole other parts of technology that I think are potential um, answers for what we see, and we should be open minded to it. It makes it very difficult to like say specifically what it was if it's it's like it's it's that same old saying, right? We don't know what we don't know. Yep. But I think some of the answers may lie, lie in that realm, and. You mentioned like what are they? What's it for? Uh, I am I am one hundred percent convinced that some of it was functional. Uh, today, all the Egyptologists and, and archaeologists say everything's um, ceremonial. Everything's representational. It's for religious purposes. It's for ceremonies and all this. Uh, I am I am very convinced that that parts of this were functional, whether it's for energy generation or some other function. I don't know what that is. But I'm convinced it was, in particular, things like the giant boxes. You have these all over the place in Egypt, either underground or in pyramids, these giant single-piece hardstone boxes that display similar aspects of precision that we've talked about earlier. And I think there was something going on uh, with those. And it's it's a complex sort of point, but there's there's a definite relationship between precision and function. Like we don't – you don't develop the ability to make things – that are perfect to within a thousandth of an inch, that's an expensive capability to develop unless you're chasing a functional return. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like it, if if a box is ceremonial and you're going to bury a bull in it, there's no reason to make it perfectly flat and square. I mean, you color within the lines it's, and slap a lid on it, it's good enough. Like it, it serves its purpose. You don't have to make it solid. You don't have to get rid of all the cracks. You know, you look at our microprocessor industry today, like we can develop chips with, you know, a density or, or in a process that's five nanometers, you know, in width, like we're making transistors down to these tiny amounts, incredibly complex technology, but we're doing so because we're chasing a functional return on the power footprint and the efficiency and all these other things. The same thing applies to to the nature of ancient precision. And it's, in fact, it's applied to the, the nature of precision in our modern world. Like we, we only started to develop precision once we started to, we wanted our frigging naval cannons to shoot straighter and we wanted to make accurate <laughs> Um, you know, chronometers so we could keep time. And then the steam engine came along and, oh man, we need flat surfaces for that because of, you know, more pressure and all this. So you, you you develop that capability for a functional return. And then once you have it and your manufacturing capability supports it, everything you make now can show you those aspects. So it's why you get to vases and statues that also have this nature level of precision in them. It's hard to argue that a vase or a statue is functional but it's definitely precise. It's the subject. It's you know. It's the result of that manufacturing process, in the same way that modern cars today, like the panel gaps and everything's much more precise and tight than it was in the 1960s. Does it have to be? No. But our manufacturing process, you know, that's what you get. Everything's you design it and it stamps it out and it makes it, and then it's it's much more precise than it used to be, thanks yeah. to the the nature of the manufacturing process. So that's that's kind of where I go with this stuff. It's not you know. It's probably not as specific as you're looking for, but that's no, 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 that's great. I'm I'm grateful that you take that approach. Like the amount, I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, we see it a lot in kind of like the the 
holistic health space or the or the mushroom space, if you will, you you get folks who can potentially muddy the water of what you're trying to achieve or represent um, by by getting quite loose in in how you um, entertain ideas. And so I, I really respect that about the entire trip and all the content that you put out. Um, it's it's really single focused and um, and in a way that that just layers in legitimacy and and, and even like back to the functionality you brought this up uh, really to my attention is like when we were over there we were in a host of different hallways and tunnels and chambers but when you go into the pyramids themselves and you're in the tunnels and the chambers it's completely different it is it feels like you're you're you are literally crawling through something that is more of like a like an air vent than mm-hmm. it than it is an actual hallway or ceremonial tunnel yeah the yeah. fact that um i think a lot of people and even google um my sister yeah. was nice enough when i threw out some of these um theor- uh, theories yeah i guess of like what the function of the pyramids are or could be she she copy and pasted from google she was like no they're they're burial sites they're tombs and i was like okay yes that's what google says but here's <laughs> a lot of evidence that points to another story that's maybe not that's maybe not being yeah. told and so and uh but yeah when you're in the pyramids that compared to the valley of the kings where all the tombs are um certainly not all every single one but where these kings and pharaohs were were buried i mean it is palatial it is every inch of the walls is colorful glyphs like you know fit for a king mm-hmm. when you're inside the, the pyramids underneath and it uh, it's air vent type structures yeah. and it seems a lot more functional to your point functional rather than ornamental yeah, it's almost industrial. Like I, I do, I, I have that feeling too. Walking around inside structures like the Great Pyramid, you do feel kind of like you're in a machine. It doesn't feel yeah. like it's meant for human occupation. That's for sure. And it would be a hell of a lot more difficult if they, if we didn't have all of the wooden stairs and rails and handrails yeah. and stuff they put in there to move around. You'd be, you'd find it very challenging to get around in there at all because they, you know, they're steep passages. And you'd be sliding down them uh, mm. and then trying to like climb up them would be a whole other, a whole other deal. But yeah, you're right, and that's the thing. We there's as much as you know, we we say they're tombs, and Google might say they're tombs, and uh, the mainstream guys might say they're tombs, but there's very very little evidence that they're tombs. Almost none, in fact. Um, no bodies have ever been found in them. No glyphs have been found in them. There's some controversy around a particular glyph in the in the Great Pyramid. Uh, there's one glyph in there that's in the very top of the relieving chambers. You can't we can't get into those. Uh, it's very difficult to get up there, but there is a glyph up there that supposedly says Khufu. There's a lot of speculation that that was carved by Howard Weiss. It's a long story, but there's it's very suspect. Uh, and I can talk about that for an hour, but put it this way, there's no glyphs in the Great Pyramid, and there's or, nor in the other pyramids for that matter, the megalithic ones, that suggest that they're a tomb, that king's names aren't on them. We know what old kingdom tombs look like. There are old kingdom tombs at the Giza Plateau. Covered in glyphs, covered in edifices and and things like that. There's just there's no evidence that they that they're tombs. It's so strange that that's the prevailing theory when there's almost there's just no evidence for it. No bodies, no nothing. And and there's almost in fact once you get into it too, there's very very little evidence, scant evidence that even connects these rulers to these pyramids. Like Khufu, 
there's almost no evidence that he that even though we say that's Khufu's pyramid, other than this very extremely questionable glyph that's in the relieving chamber, there's like a, a three inch statue of him that they found down in the Valley Temple, nowhere near the middle the, the Great Pyramid, and that's it. Like there's just no there's really no evidence that connects him to it. It's just he's said to like it's just during their civilization they they sort of associated him with it and we just take their word for it like we and the other thing the funny thing is is in we've got tons of evidence and we showed it on the trip that egyptian rulers have a strong tendency particularly in later periods that the 19th dynasty ramses the second right how many times did we talk yep. about ramses the second and his son meren patar the very strong tendency to claim objects and artifacts for themselves and write their names on them like they would ramses was notorious for this he would he would take something that's far more ancient and carve his name into it and then therefore later on in history he gets attributed as being the guy who had it made because that's how egyptology works they read what's written on it if there's writing on an object they go okay well clearly this object was made by that guy and maybe the whole site was made by that guy in that period because we know about when that guy lived and it's it's just there's so many examples of where this stuff's been inherited and rewritten on. There's there's objects with three or four pharaohs' names on them, and the same thing could have happened in the old kingdom. In fact, we, there is strong evidence for renovation and inheritance in the old kingdom as well. Uh, I have some videos on the topic, but you know these pharaohs may have even claimed these these pyramids for themselves because there's just there's really bugger all evidence that um, suggests they had it, they had it built, and they certainly don't look like tombs. There's just right. there's endless contradictions to the tomb theory, but that's you know that's what Google will tell you. It's a tomb. It's funny. I live in a little island off of San Diego, and and there's a historic hotel on the beach. It's from the 1800s, and the Hilton runs it now. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm like laughing yeah, to myself totally. because it's almost like you know, 500 years from now, if it's you know post next cataclysm, somebody comes to the Coronado Island. And they see this, you know, structure that's ancient. They're like, "Oh, wow, this is a Hilton hotel from yeah. twenty three or something." Wow, and right. it's, you know, it's even older than that. And and I think that that in many cases is how things have been dated. It's like, let's scratch the the surface or look at one one point that could be, um, you know, maybe something that is more recent. Um, yep, I've I've been laughing to myself because as that's probably how it's going to shake out. Probably, yeah, same thing. It's it's equivalent to like you know. Like you say, post cataclysm, they go to like uh, they find a skyscraper and there's some graffiti written on it. Says you know, little Timmy was here. And they're like man, this little Timmy was some dude. He, uh, <laughs> right. He had this thing built, amazing. You know, like yeah. it's it's literally that's the that is the process that happens on some of these sites. And you see it. The Serapium is probably the best example with the giant big granite precision granite box that's got like literally chicken scratch writing all over it. Oh, you can yeah. see someone's just attacked this thing with a chisel. <laughs> very yeah. poorly no straight lines you know they couldn't even mark the surface in places but it's the most valuable box because it's got the most writing on it and it tells mm -hmm. us the story of what who built this place it's like yeah no yeah it's, you can like see your reflection I know. In, in the in the quality of of this oh. uh, uh it's a what 100 100 ton 100 ton more or less yeah i mean about 70 box. 80 tons the box and 30 tons for the and like perfect 90 degree angles in on the inside and outside yeah. And then, yeah, like you said, it's like chicken scratch glyphs. It looks like, honestly, like something I could do. Like if they yeah. were like, okay, copy this, I'd be like, okay, I'll do my yeah. best. You can literally see the marks from where someone's attacked it with a chisel. And the box itself has perfect straight lines and there's not a single straight line in the writing. It's waving all over the place. You know, the, the, the granite's been polished to a mirror finish, which is not a natural property of granite. You have to work really hard to do that. Yeah, there's a huge technological mismatch 
across Egypt is one of the other signs of inheritance and reuse. There's a massive difference between the quality of the writing, even the good writing and the objects themselves. Like even the good writing became a high art form too. Like it's not, it's not all chicken scratch like the Serapeum box. There's, there's, there's also excellent writing, but you can still, you look closely at it. It's still done with hand tools. You can achieve it with hand tools. And like I said, later in that civilization, they did have iron and steel. So you're much more effective about carving granite, but you doesn't display the same characteristics, things like the machining marks and the precision that you see on some of the artifacts. It's why I actually think, and Yusuf thinks this as well, is that the writing is all done by the dynastic civilization. I think they, like obelisks and things like that, I think they added writing to them. Um, statues, they added the writing. And there's, we showed a number of, there's a lot of examples of where that it's obvious that the writing came later. Like it's in some places, like on the big statues, you have glyphs that are carved over features that were pre-existing on the statue. So wow. it's like the belt line and the dagger and the kilt. Yeah. You, you can literally see the marks where they've carved over the top of that stuff. Now, if you were, to, if you were making that statue from scratch and designing it with the intent of having that writing as a part of it, you wouldn't go to the effort of carving granite and carving these features into granite only to have them basically written over the top of. You would incorporate that glyph somewhere else in another way in a feature that that was a bit more holistic i mean that's you just wouldn't do it that way and there's 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 almost an endless series of examples just like that yet that writing and that glyph is exactly how that object gets dated and related mm -hmm. into the story of history it's funny it's it's a yeah the whole thing is a lot of these assumptions and that we make about these artifacts can you dig into the details and you can you can really challenge them yeah. i think yeah, it's making me think of, you know, all of these these details and these stories and the the new evidence and everything like pointing to the fact that like okay, kids, listeners, us, everyone, the history books just because they're printed don't have all the answers. Just because you find it on Google doesn't mean there's not a wealth of oh, yeah. evidence that would point to an, a different uh, another story and all of that to say, this doesn't just apply to archaeology, Egyptology, history. That's kind of a sentiment that I, I hope we carry throughout life where it's like, if we think we have all the answers in science, in health, in spirituality, in Egyptology, we're fooling ourselves. Let's not be so arrogant that we stop asking questions and that yeah. we stop questioning our beliefs that maybe we've held for a very long time. I think that it gets into dangerous territory, kind of the too big for our britches type type of deal when we when we think that we do have all the answers yep. and uh i i just love this this idea of like let's just stay humble and and keep the keep the question marks coming like just well we won't use any periods we'll just use question marks yeah. on the ends of any types of you know presentations of these ev evidences and um you know how how you uh present um what you've discovered and everything it's like you're not claiming to have all the answers either. No, the, I don't. Another thing that I, I love, it's also frustrating at times because I'm like, Ben, I want the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that a bit. Yeah, but I don't have the answers, I people. I, I I definitely don't have the answers, but I'm trying to what I want us to do is is to is to to look for them in a more open-minded fashion. Yeah. It's, I just that's exactly you, what you said is exactly right. It's always worth returning to first principles and to question our beliefs. It's always worth questioning authority and whatever the mainstream is. 
that tell you to tell you that it's true because it's true. Like that's worth questioning. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I'm not claiming to know how this stuff was done. I'm I'm pretty confident. I know some of the claims that say they know how it was done are wrong, which is sort of the basis for a lot of my questions and work. And I'm hopeful that we will go and and look for the answers in a bit more of an open minded fashion. And yeah, I I echo. I'm I'm a little concerned about the way the the way that information gets controlled a little bit in the modern era, just because. You know, it's not just the internet anymore. Now, the internet is essentially a series of portals that we we all look through to to whether that's a Google search result or it's Wikipedia or it's Facebook or it's a social media engine. I mean, that's those are control points that are pretty much trying to dictate and control information. You see it on YouTube, you see it on Google, you see it on Twitter and 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 social media where it's like, oh no, this information is incorrect. This can't be right. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of efforts being made to control that information and. Uh, yeah, I mean, don't even get me started on, on Wikipedia and some of these, you know, not just not just Google, but Wikipedia's got its issues too when it comes to some I of refuse. these contentious I, topics. I yeah. refuse to use Wikipedia because I yeah. have heard from too many experts, doctors, people, people like Graham Hancock, mm-hmm. um, who are completely 100% misrepresented on Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. So yeah, this a is a, a, a PSA, like everyone stop using mm-hmm. Wikipedia because there's only certain amount of people that can edit and then it yeah. can be changed by the person who actually knows what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. I called out a guy, I won't mention the name, but it was a mainstream archeologist for um, calling everybody else's opinion biased and pointing them towards the younger Dryas impact hypothesis page on Wikipedia and saying, this is the most unbiased source for it, which was of course entirely in line with his perspective that it was all a bunch of nonsense and recycled comet myths, which, it's not. There's more than 150 peer-reviewed papers behind it, but turned out he was the one editing the Wikipedia page and saying yeah. that. Like it's just, and I called him out for it, and he blocks me. This is years ago now, but yeah, that's that's kind of how that works. That's right. There is a whole, there's a whole tribe of people and a caste system almost behind who can edit Wikipedia pages and what it says. It's by no means an authoritative source. Yeah. 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 Oh man, this has been so awesome. I know, I know, I know there's still more okay. to be desired, uh, <laughs> and, and I want to leave more to be desired because the goodie okay. bag that is your YouTube channel yeah. uh, includes so much more, and, mm-hmm. and you know things Thank that you. that blew my mind when we were in Egypt and and what you've articulated over the years. You know, tube drill marks, um, some of the some of the uh, the work around uh, even just just like newer technologies that are coming out that we might be able to start drawing some some lines of conclusion or correlation to as it pertains to some of these, you know, ancient technologies, uh, which I think there's more to come, but um, where, is there anything else that's just like wildly compelling that you're dying to share and, or what are you currently working on that people can start paying attention to? Um, I would, uh, yeah, I mean, I do have a, I'd say this, if you're, if you're new to the topic, I do have an introductionary introduction video that kind of lays out the overall case. Uh, Might be worth going uh, and taking a look at that. Um, And I do have a whole series on, I guess the the uh, the nature of of the evidence for ancient technology, like precision machining, like I've got some sort of ground level things, and then we dive into sites. I'm I'm I've been fascinated recently by some of the um, the giant statues, the thousand ton plus objects. There's, there's evidence for a whole bunch of those, and we've been finding some more evidence for those. So some of my recent contents on that. But but lately, I'm really I, I'm really I'm really down with this the the vase work. Like I, I think that this the vases represent a true smoking gun, yeah, to the mainstream story because they disappear, Be, because like you can argue all day about 
statues and columns and you get people to say, no, no, they made it later on because it's on a site from the New Kingdom or whatever. And I, I think a lot of that stuff, you know, is more ancient. You, you don't, you can't make that case with the vases. The vases are, are, are significantly advanced technological object that then disappear from the the very earliest times of the Egyptian kingdom, like third, fourth dynasty gone. They're very, with very few exceptions after that. They're all alabaster and different stone, different technology. So the vase work and the fact that we've managed to get one scanned, I think it's it's a it's a world's first. I think it's it's I think it is genuinely moving this discussion forward. I hope it. There's definitely been some gnashing of teeth and some some um, some backlash from some mainstream sources, which I was entirely expecting. Uh, but I very much hope some people take us up on the challenge of trying to make them, uh, and that and that um, you know we can get access to a few more of these things and build up a body of work. So. I'm pretty intently focused on that at the moment. Uh, also preparing for, I've got a bunch of trips coming up and then um, the Cosmic Summit. I think that's going to be great. Like yeah. I, I want to share and I'm, I'm going to present the overall case, like I think a version of what you saw in Egypt, but then dive in. I want to really, because it's only 45 minutes or something, I'm going to, I'm really going to focus on the vases and the recent scanning work and try and convey what we're uh, where we're at with that and what it means for the story of, of history. But yeah, I'm just, I, I'm getting to a couple of places that I haven't been to for the ever uh this year so turkey the uk well like stonehenge all of those sites is all happening this year so i'm really looking forward to that um yeah amazing awesome and, and if there's more trips uncharted x trips in the future obviously let us know because we might want to go yeah, for sure <laughs> um, but, but let us know as well because we'll we'll push it out to our our community yeah. i'm sure you're, you're wetting the appetite of of men yeah. here there were yeah. quite a few people when we were in egypt and i was doing every day trying to ke keep up with like <laughs> here's what we saw today and it was just it was yeah. a lot but uh there were a lot of people that oh my gosh egypt has been on my list what mm -hmm. group did you go with who can i contact how can i do this so there's definitely um a demand for it at least you know even just from from our audience for sure cool yeah that's great i mean we, i love the egypt trip like i just i'm gonna try and at least i mean i'm I'll, I'll, my next trip's probably going to be january february of 24 uh, in fact, when we're trying to we're trying to book out the whole boat, if we can, it'd be about the same size group. But if if we do that, imagine the boat, but we'll be on the boat for like eleven days instead yeah. of just just the three or four, which would be great. And then, uh, yeah, we'll see. But I, I, yeah, I love that. And people, I genuinely enjoy sharing these things with with people on those trips. And and people definitely seem to have the time of their lives on these trips. It's mm -hmm. I get that feedback quite a bit. So yeah, it's 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 worth doing. It's it's worth doing it with with a with a good group. Um, and yeah, those will be posted. I mean, I post everything up I'm doing on my website, it's unchartedx.com, uh, upcoming tours and stuff like that. And then my socials are all there and I, I tend to message those out when the trips are ready and things like that. But yeah, I, I love doing those trips and I'm, I'm going to try and do one, one a year. Maybe it won't always be one a year, but, um, it's a great opportunity for me to do research. The main thing, you know, we talked about getting the Sphinx temple. You, we, I tend to build them around special permissions. And, and getting into places that I couldn't get into otherwise, and they're very expensive, and I can't afford it. So it's a nice way you you have a group, you share yeah. the cost, and then everybody gets to have that experience of going somewhere special. And I get the chance to kind of do a bit of research. So it's a it's kind of a win win. 
Yeah. 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 That was great. The special permissions. Honestly, we felt like VIP. <laughs> well, and I, I just like, I get so much dopamine off of telling people that we got special access to places yeah, yeah, yeah. here in the States. Like, <laughs> yep. I feel like a, yep. like a stud, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's been decades since people yeah. have seen this. And- yeah. We're coming in yeah, in the yeah. huge tour bus. And, you know, there's people that get are, out of the way. They're, <laughs> you know, waving like we're some kind of movie stars or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, no, we're going down into the Sphinx, Sphinx enclosure. Don't yep. worry about it. <laughs> you know, there's people just lining the walls around the outside. Yeah. Right. We are down here and you are up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I will just say too, if you're interested in the Egypt trip, um, definitely follow Ben, follow Uncharted X. It sounds like you'll be you'll be keeping that updated. But we came back from that trip and we were like, this was an absolute steal. Like it, it's yeah. it's not a small amount of money, but it, it with everything that we did. The hotels that we stayed at, the accommodations, meals being taken care of, guides being taken care of, special permissions, uh, cruise boat, like the people that you meet, the connections that you make, the memory. Like we came out of it. We were like, that was that was not enough money. (laughs) Not Yeah. (laughs) I I appreciate that. I'm feedback like, yeah, yeah. Thank you. The listener like, holy crap. It was we felt like it was a steal. Yeah, I can tell you, we we do it. There's certainly cheaper ways to see Egypt, but you won't get the experience that that our guys. And I, I have to give credit to like Mo, and, and Select Egypt, and Yusuf and the Kemet School because they just put on just a crack. They, I think they, I genuinely think they're the best in the business at it because yes. we stay. It's all five star. The, the the hotels are just wonderful. The experience is great, and we just pile it on. Like, yeah, I uh, I those guys do impressive work, and I'm, I'm lucky that I've connected with them to execute on them because i just think they're they're great like yeah. everyone it's a good experience and yeah it's it's uh it's it's a fun trip we try to i mean we understand it's a bucket list item for people in yes. that case right going there so you want it to be a memorable experience and i think mm-hmm. those guys really deliver uh doing that i put the itinerary together but they're they're responsible for delivering kind of all of that which is yeah i think they do an excellent job of so well yeah. you guys thank you, are thank you for the recommend for the vote of confidence it's yeah. an absolute you guys are the dream team really like it's an absolute wild success and 12 out of 10 recommend it to thank you anyone who's interested yeah no doubt yeah Ben, thank you so much man this was this was a blast and, and i hope it's just just a sliver of of what's more to come and and you know if you're doing peru later yeah we might, we might <laughs> yeah, awesome. in there yeah. um but i uh, just so appreciate your time your intelligence and just the level of integrity you put into the things that you're doing it's just refreshing and um yeah continue to let us know how we can just be an extension of you awesome chase mimi fantastic catching up with you guys and thank you so much for inviting me on here it was a real pleasure chatting with you we'll do that yeah it was so fun thank you guys for tuning in and hanging with us i hope you got your minds blown ours were blown all over again and check out uncharted x follow him stay up on his stuff think about going to egypt it's absolutely worth it we'll talk to you next time go spread some light okay bye hey friend thanks for listening did you hear anything today that expanded your mind made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.